So tell me something interesting about yourself, Tom Francis. I was born near Oxford. <laughs> I thought I said something interesting. <laughs> I misheard. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, conversations with video game developers. Um, today, I'm in London uh, talking to Tom Francis, who made Gunpoint. Hello. Uh, Tom was a journalist for a long time and um, made Gunpoint over a number of years while he was still working as a, as a journalist, and that uh, Gunpoint came out in mid-2013. End of May, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's been quite well received <laughs> and, and did well and, and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, uh, Tom, thanks for being on the show to talk about uh, your work. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, you, how long were, how long were you in journalism for? Nine years. All right. Did you, did you go straight out of school into journalistic pursuits? Uh, not straight, but it was my first full-time job. So I... Uh, when I finished university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and um, I kind of bummed around for like a month or so, staying with my parents, uh, looking for a city to live in, and uh, during that time, kind of uh, just did random things, and one of those things is I actually wrote like a design document for a game, um, yeah. and I also tried writing a script for a TV show, and uh, just kind of explored things to see what I wanted to do, and then... Designing the game was really, really fun. Um, in fact, they're both pretty fun, but I like, found like I was really, really interested in thinking up systems and stuff like that. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this is definitely what I should do, but I know there's no way I can do it. So <laughs> give up on that dream completely. And then like look for a job in like finance, maybe insurance, because <laughs> I'd right. done maths at university and I was oh, like okay. I was very like practical and I was like, okay, I, like this is a thing that you can get a high paying job doing. Yeah. Um, and for some reason that seemed really important. <laughs> And then I ended up moving to Bath just because a friend of mine was already living there and I wanted yeah. to live with him. Didn't really care what city I went to. And I just did like temp jobs for a while whilst looking for this this job in insurance or <laughs> finance that would be so, so fulfilling. Your, and you use your number skills to yeah. make some money, yeah. Um, and then only after I moved to Bath did I discover that PC Gaming were based there. And a friend of a friend was um, already working at Future Publishing um, and told me they had an opening. Yeah. And I just applied and then didn't get it <laughs> and uh, it was a position for a writer and I wrote like a sample piece for it and yeah. I reviewed I think Hitman 2 oh, okay. um, and sent that in and didn't even get an interview there was just no response whatsoever yeah. um, and then like a few maybe just a month later they needed a disc editor and I applied mm. to do that not know, really knowing what the hell it was or what it involved um, and I don't have any I didn't have any technical skills that really qualified me for that position <laughs> any more than a writer um, but once they got me in for an interview uh, it was with the ed editor and the technical editor and um, we just like talked about games for like two hours yeah. <laughs> and I talked about Deus Ex and System Drop 2 and stuff right. and I found out afterwards that I kind of like uh, ballsed up the technical side of things like I didn't really know what to say when they asked me like how I'd improve the disc and things right. um, but they like they felt like I was the only person they interviewed who had the same level of enthusiasm for games that they did and so they just wanted me as like part of the team Yeah. and then after I got a job as disc editor I kind of like uh, I kept volunteering myself writing assignments and trying to take that on on top of like redesigning the disc and doing all the technical stuff Right. Um, 
and as I did more of that and I got better at that, they they one day decided, hey, you should be a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I know, that's why I applied for the writer position that you didn't even interview me for. <laughs> well, I'm, but I mean, that is that is a big part of it in in any situation, isn't it? Like, I found is probably more important than your technical skills or exactly what you're capable of, like, putting on screen when you interview is just, like, being in this in, in the right mindset, you know? Like, like being a person that, that the team wants to work with, you know, and then finds a, a place for, for you in a way. Because um, it sounds like yeah, you were you were aligned with uh, <laughs> with the interests of the of the people you were talking to there. Yeah, it definitely felt like a good fit, and yeah. it just felt like like if that could be my job, if I could just hang out with these people and talk about games all the time, that would be fantastic. <laughs> well, how did you get like what were your what were your formative experiences with games that brought you into that interest set? You know, because like that that specific sort of uh, uh, vein of of game design and playing um, is some somewhat rarefied I don't know like if you if you're in a, if you're paying attention to a certain kind of like games journalism and stuff it was it was kind of highly touted but were you were you always like a, a PC gaming person or did you play a lot of console stuff as well or no I was always PC um, my dad had a PC and uh, actually we had a BBC Micro first that's probably the first thing I played games on which is like it was a personal computer made by the BBC, by the BBC. and it's a kind of an educational thing yeah. you could program on it and um, there were games for it I played like I think Battlezone I played on it mm. and yeah. a bunch of quite obscure stuff like a game called Castle that was about breaking out of prison and cool. a game I guess it was a castle yeah um, <laughs> but you were, you were in prison in the castle <laughs> yeah so you know and a game called Granny's Garden which is terrifying and kind of awful but um most what? of the stuff I played back then, I didn't, I didn't have a way of judging it or anything to compare it to. So what, I just played it. Was it everything. literally terrifying? Like a scary game? It was like a puzzle game. But every time you get an answer wrong, you get eaten by this witch, and the <laughs> witch's face it just fills the whole screen, <laughs> and she's all like knobbly and pixely, and like you see her kind of mangled jaw just going up and down as she's supposedly chewing on you, I think. Or and I certainly had the impression I was being eaten. And that's a granny. <laughs> yep. Dark. <laughs> BBC, what are you doing to yeah, the children? I guess they they wanted you to really get your answers right. <laughs> but they were they were um that was terrible. <laughs> and that's why I never went back to video games. Uh but actually once we had a PC with I guess DOS it was at the time, um I my dad already got like PC World, sort of general PC magazine that had yeah. some game stuff in it. And they had I think every issue they did a like a, a table of all their review scores ever. And we just looked at what the two highest rated games ever were and bought them both. And it was yeah. Monkey Island 2 and Ultimate Underworld. Those are good. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, fucking games journalism works. <laughs> I don't really know what to recommend. Yeah, no, I mean, I felt I felt the same way when I was growing up. You know, I, I, I subscribed to Nintendo Power Magazine. And then, yeah, in the early 90s, I remember I picked up a copy of PC Gamer on just the shelf and I, you know, saw it for the first time. And I was kind of getting more into PC games at that point because I had gone from like pc to consoles back to pc and so forth um and yeah it was early 90s and it was kind of the the heyday of like ultra like like origin games you know right. um and i had really liked um syndicate which was on like a demo disc that came with one of my friend's computers or and so i was i played that a lot and so i was kind of looking for other isometric games 
Because whatever, I was in that state where I'm like, oh, I like games like this. Once <laughs> this this the camera's like from this <laughs> viewpoint. Is, you know, you don't know what the fuck. Um, but I remember I picked up a PC Gamer magazine on the shelf and they scored Crusader No Remorse really highly. And I'm like, oh, yeah. oh that's that looks like a kind of game that I like. And they say it's good. I'll see about this. And so I went out and bought Crusader No Remorse. And I was like, this game's awesome. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read PC Gamer from now on. <laughs> uh, and yeah, like I feel like when I was growing up, you know, like, yeah, reading games magazines... And having someone be able to tell me, this one's actually good. Yeah. And because I think a lot of people, when they're growing up, they just play whatever happens to be lying around. And you end up playing a lot of bad games. Yeah. Like Granny's Garden. <laughs> if only they've been like BBC gamer <laughs> to warn me off that. I think uh, Crusader might be where my love of um, breaking into offices comes from. Yeah. Because there are a lot of office environments in that game for some yeah. reason. Even though you're on the moon or something. Yeah, uh, you, I think that... I think you end up going to the moon yeah. at the end. But yeah, you're, you're in these these facilities that are run by mega corporations yeah. or whatever. I remember my... It was also kind of like Syndicate. It had that very early, just like, moral... It, 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 it allowed you to, to just like waste you know, civilians. And yeah. just didn't comment on it at all. It was just like, if you did that, you did it. Which yeah. I think is a lot better than, like, giving you evil points or, or whatever. But, <laughs> but yeah, I remember I'd be going through and, like, there would be unarmed civilians, like, a secretary at a desk or something, and when you would encounter one, they would put their hands up and then they would play a random voice file. And some of the random voice files were like, like, I have a family or something. <laughs> or, 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 like, like I'm not going to do anything. And then some of them were like, you're not supposed to be here. And, and I would Shoot be like, yeah, exactly. You'd be like, you're the guy that was like, get out of here. And I was like, you're getting shotgunned. Uh, and the guy who's like, no, I don't want any trouble. I'm like, okay, just keep standing there. We're fine. <laughs> Did you hear the story about the um, incidental dialogue in The Punisher? In the, in like the, the fairly, like a 2003-ish, like, no, what about it? So it's got some, it's got really extreme torture scenes in it. It's got yeah. some, like, you know, pushing people's faces into drills and stuff, and then yeah. ripped apart by piranhas. Um, and uh, one of the writers on it did a sort of write-up of some of the ridiculous bullshit he had to deal with as a writer on a game like that. Yeah. And apparently the censors were fine with the extreme torture, like pushing a man's face into, the, like, a saw, but only if he wasn't begging for his life. <laughs> so if he expresses a desire not to have his face pushed into the saw, then it's too far and he can't do it because right. it's cruelty. But as long as he doesn't, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. So he has to change all lines to things like, like as you're about to talk to them, they just say like, fuck you! And yeah. like, they have to still re like uh, resist you, but not express any unwillingness to right. this ha happen to them. They, they have to act like dicks, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, as if that isn't implied by the situation that they yeah. don't want this to happen. Right. <laughs> uh. But yeah, I think in the intro to Crusader, I think you shoot some civilians, like in the cutscene. The, like you come out of a pod or something, and there's two technicians, and I think you just gun them down. I I think that. Well, so the the actually the interestingly the motivation for the game, like in the the opening cutscene before any gameplay starts, is that your squad refuses to kill a group of civilians that they've been ordered to kill, and then they sick one of like the automated robots on your squad and kill everybody except your dude and that's why he joins the, the rebellion. Right. And then from that point forward you choose basically I'm fine with it now. I, I changed my mind. <laughs> There's consequences to not killing civilians, so that is <laughs> clear. Um that game had a load of like really cool systems in it. Like 
It was a really interesting. You shoot a barrel and it rolls down a corridor. Yeah. <laughs> Not no hills, I don't think, but <laughs> it would roll down a corridor, then it'd blow up and that could like set people on fire and stuff, and there was like pipes of gas, I think, and you yep. could if there was a hole in a pipe of gas and then you turn the valve it would make a jet of flame or something. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a it was that heyday of origin systems, uh, just making yeah. interesting stuff. No, it was really good. And it used the the Ultimate Eight engine, uh, <laughs> which was Ultimate Eight <laughs> was super janky and yeah, and similarly, Crusader was not easy to control. Yeah. Like, it was <laughs> it was yeah. not fun to play in a lot of ways, but if you could get into it... I mean, sort of like the original System Shock, for instance. You know, it's like, wow, this is hard to actually play. <laughs> but I figured it out, and now it's actually good. Sweet. Um, but yeah, so so you were you were into all these games as you were, you were growing up, and you said you went to college for maths. Maths and philosophy, with just, my degree. Just... Is, general like mathematics yeah it's um if you do maths and philosophy then it's it was a combined degree so it's <laughs> like you do half of one subject and half of the other subject oh, okay um and you get to choose which modules you do to some extent so there's some core ones you have to do and then you can kind of pick and choose yeah. i did a module in relativity cosmology and black holes <laughs> just, that's just one module <laughs> and because uh, i wanted to do like some like interesting mathsy stuff that was you know outside of the realm of that yeah um and I didn't really know until I started doing it that this is the stuff Einstein struggled with. <laughs> it was like, he solved it in the end, but yeah. <laughs> it took him a while. And it's that hard. I was going to say, it sounds pretty intense. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I got to pick and choose a little bit and then I ended up, it turned out I was way better at philosophy than maths. Mm. And uh, so even though it wasn't as viable a career thing, <laughs> um, I got to do my dissertation on philosophy instead of maths. Which is good because I didn't have to invent the mathematical formula or something. Right. <laughs> I don't even know how you do that, like what you have to do for maths. Yeah. But yeah, I got to just write a thing about the ethics of um, teleportation by cloning. <laughs> <laughs> that was my dissertation. It's like, you know, so you know, in, um, I don't think it applies to Star Trek. Well, it kind of does, depending on which bit of Star Trek you listen to, but. Um, the idea that you could scan somebody and then recreate them at the other end yeah. and transfer the data. Yeah. Um, if you do that, have you killed the person? Yeah. Or are they still alive? And looking at different like thought experiments to kind of um, unpick that. Yeah. I talked to my mum about it. I talked to. I decided like because it's an ethics thing, you kind of want to get people's gut reactions and say, "How do you feel about this scenario? How do you yeah. feel about that?" And I asked my mum about that, and she said. Um, uh, I think it's okay as long as it's done in like a sci-fi kind of way. <laughs> There's only like a sparkle or a flash yeah. or something as the person's disintegrated, then it's not killing. <laughs> but if it's like, if they collapse into a bloody heap, then yeah. it is. <laughs> it's whether it looks nice or not. It's yeah. the main question. Um, yeah, because that, uh, that was kind of one of the core conceits of the game, The Swapper, that came out earlier yeah. this year as well. Yeah, I haven't completed it yet, but I played it a bit and I love it. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of teleporting and thereby deleting your, yeah. your former you, self who just ragdolls you over. get the impression in the swapper it might not be okay <laughs> like, particularly when you're just like you're just farming them out just spewing them from your gun <laughs> endless bodies well how so was your was your your dissertation well received <laughs> um, yeah I think so because right. the the philosophy department had to have a fight with the maths department about what class my degree would be. <laughs> they wanted to give me a first and the maths department didn't. Oh, I see. So they had to have like, because I, I really screwed up my maths. Uh, <laughs> I just I wasn't like, I'm good at year one maths and year two maths and then year three maths is just like, what the fuck? <laughs> and it just gets really insanely brutal. And so I was trying really hard but failing at maths basically and but doing really well at philosophy because yeah. um, it turns out to be quite easy <laughs> and because uh, it's just like clear thinking really yeah. which comes up a lot in like game design yeah. you know yeah, yeah. the way I kind of argue with myself in a design document now is pretty similar to how I argue with myself about philosophy stuff in philosophy yeah um, 
And so, yeah, so, so you went from there, and you ended up at, at PC Gamer before too long. Yeah. And I made, um, I did data entry for a car dealership, <laughs> and I built skateboards in a warehouse for a while, and then I got PC Gamer. Yeah. Well, the skateboards in a warehouse sounds better to me, probably, <laughs> overall. Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> um, so, so you were at PC Gamer for like nine years? Yep. Wow. Uh, I think two years as a disc editor, and then the other seven were as like uh, staff writer, then section editor, and section editor, which just means like I was in charge of Extra Life, which is the bit of the magazine that's about stuff you do with games after they've been released, like oh, yeah. mod them, um, play them again after like five years, um, right. or try some crazy experiment and do a diary of it, or yeah. like um, my favorite bit was called Why I Love, where we just pick one thing from one game and just say, here's why. I Tim did one on like, here's why I love my Jaguar in World of Warcraft. And, right. Um, I think Tony Ellis, uh, production editor, did one on here's why I love burning churches in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> I did one on, um, uh, I think it was the, the, just the kick in fear. Right. Um, just that, the feel of kicking someone in the face in the, fear. The bicycle having, kick, the yeah, flying bicycle kick, which was really good. Like fall with a really heavy slam and just the force of that thing was awesome. Yeah. Uh, also the, the very difficult to do the key input for, but the slide kick is yeah. like super powerful. Yeah. <laughs> and you can like, if you kick, I think, I guess a, a living person or a corpse, but anything that's a ragdoll after you kick it and you kick it into like a balcony or something, they just get stuck in the geometry because yeah. the force is so big. Because they go so fast, yeah. Um, yeah, having, having worked on a fear expansion pack, uh, I've seen all the numbers for that stuff. And there are, there's different like, modifiers for if you're hitting an armored target or an unarmored target. If you're hitting an armored target, the kicks and and, and slide kicks and, and whatnot do almost no no damage because right. they're just damped. But like the slide kick specifically on an unarmored target just does like ten thousand damage. <laughs> it's like if you land this thing you were gonna kill the dude. Uh, and it's like that's fine. Except it meant that that was also true in multiplayer. <laughs> so it made the ultimate uh, uh, tactic in multiplayer just be constantly running around, sliding and jump kicking. <laughs> it just insta-kills on anyone you can make contact with. Awesome. Um, I wanted to do like a Kung Fu-only playthrough of Fear. Yeah. Um, I think I used to have a point in Fear where I stopped uh, when I think the robots were introduced or like, like flying drones maybe yeah. so after that it's like flying drones and ghosts and neither of those were that fun to fight Yeah, yeah. so I only like the human uh, combat and yeah. I thought fighting the walker max was also good yeah at times I just really liked the kung fu so I wanted to do as much kung fu as possible right. and I wanted to use just um, melee stuff Yeah. and obviously if you have like a weapon out of any kind you can hit people with it as right. well um, but I didn't want to accidentally shoot so the thing I used was the detonator for the remote grenades <laughs> so it's just like a stick in my hand and any time I melee with it you just kind of like bonk them on the head with the like <laughs> the bit of plastic I guess yeah. <laughs> so that was like my last resort move was just like hit them with the detonator <laughs> yeah the like there's a lot of good good quasi-emergent stuff in in fear like you could throw grenades and then go into slow-mo and shoot the grenade yeah. uh, in the air you know to like Detonate it near a group of guys that you were going to miss yeah. or whatever. I can add those. Yeah, there was there was a lot of good stuff going on. Uh, I was a big fan of Fear. Um, I talked to uh, Craig Hubbard, who was like oh, yeah. the um, main guy behind Fear, and and Nolf. He had some interesting stories about you know shipping games, shipping like blood on the build engine. In, oh, yeah, you know, nineteen ninety six or whatever, and just how it was very. Wild West, yeah, <laughs> releasing a PC game at that time. I was a huge fan of Blood. 
That was like while the sort of Duke Nukem and Quake wars were going on, and I was just obsessed with blood and didn't yeah. shit about anything else. Actually, I did. I did really like both those games, and like at the time, but then the blood was like the biggest deal of that decade for me. Um, well, yeah. What 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 drew you to blood over the other <laughs> um, games? It was, was, it, was it the voxels? You can tell me. <laughs> oh yeah, they had like yeah. What was it? Because the enemies were sprites, weren't they? Yeah. They did have some voxel stuff in there. They had voxel world geometry stuff, so right. they could do. Yeah, like, like the graves were voxel. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I said to him. I was like, I remember a voxel gravestone very clearly. <laughs> and with some of the weapon pickups, maybe. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, like. I think so. Um, I've always had a thing about um, like power of weapons in games. I, I really want to. If I shoot someone in the head, I want them to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe phrase that but like, um, if a weapon doesn't have the power I expect it to yeah. it really grates with me and the, the feel of the game is ruined and I always found that with Quake I felt like you know you can machine gun a guy in the head a few times doesn't do anything um, yeah. and you know until they run out of hit points they don't even react they just kind of they might have a little pain animation but uh, yeah. it's not a big deal and they didn't and have locational damage in Quake 1 right? no probably not um and that was why I preferred Duke over Quake. It had generally more powerful weapons, but then yeah. Blood in particular is just like everything you have just slaughters everybody. <laughs> and like one of the first weapons you get is just dynamite. You can yeah. just throw dynamite for the whole game and yeah. it just like people just go flying and <laughs> ripped apart and they're screaming. And I was young at the time. Yeah. <laughs> that was what I wanted in life was yeah. people screaming as I throw dynamite at them. <laughs> and like um, it was really, it just felt much more like fresh than the other two games like Duke Nukem was kind of sordid and um, kind of like puerile and I didn't really have a problem with it but it just wasn't as exciting to me yeah. Quake was very dry and very, it took itself very seriously um, uh, to me it seemed and well it's fair, it, was, it was it was very like gothic and brown and kind yeah. of horror-ish in, in a very grimy way I felt like yeah and Blood was, was horror like tropes but it was um the weapons were really inventive. There's a voodoo doll in there. Yeah. <laughs> you could like stab and um, some really weird weapons. Um, really good shotgun. And it just the feel of it was much better than either of those games for me. Yeah. And I loved the kind of... Uh, the atmosphere was so much more interesting of just being like... You feel like you're in a horror movie set kind of. Yeah. In fact, you kind of are. Like there's a shining level. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, it had much much better sense of a world like I think you go out into like arctic ice flows at some point and you're on like a boat <laughs> um, I never I, I only I think I only played the demo of, right. of Blood uh, but it was you know it was a significant demo I ended out. up um, I made levels for I guess never made anything for Quake uh, level wise but mm-hmm. I did Duke levels and then because I knew Duke a bit I made Blood levels yeah. and um, I don't think I ever released a Blood level but I made one that was quite Extensive and had a big like underground cave network thing, um, and I I remember that being much more satisfying than working with Duke or anything because it kind of felt like you could make a slightly real world location and it didn't feel kind of fake. Right. Um, yeah. So I made like I think there was some kind of outdoor like research facility. Then you went underneath it and there's a big cave network there <laughs> and stuff like the sort of I don't know just. A, dripping dank cave that's really big and has like a waterfall in it and stuff was yeah. awesome I'd never seen anything like that yeah, yeah. to like make that was really cool yeah um, yeah I made the first level that I made was a Duke Nukem 3D level and it had a big cave network <laughs> <laughs> but mine was like lava caves um, you use the, use the jetpack to fly around uh, to like platforms that were above oh, the lava awesome. did you do the thing where um, I remember thinking like 
Um, I might have done this. No, I think I did it first in build. Um, like, hey, why do games just have these flat, like, ordinary walls? Um, when you're editing a map, you can move the cursor around. I think you press space to place a vertex, yeah, uh, right. like a corner. And yeah. so I was just like, I can make a curved room. I'll just move the mouse in a curved motion whilst hammering the space. <laughs> placing like 3,000 vertices in this room. <laughs> that doesn't run that well, but it looks really smooth. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so you did some... We did some some editing, some you know, just sort of hobbyist stuff. Yeah. Um, and then you were, yeah, you were working at PC Gamer for for a long time. Were you continuing to do any of that kind of stuff in the in the meantime between starting as a journalist and 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 then digging into Gunpoint, which was you know what, a few years ago now? So there was some time in between. No, I don't think I actually did anything creative while I was working at PC Gamer until Gunpoint. I did, we did once did a feature on game making and we each decided to pick a way of making games mm. and try and do one in 24 hours. Oh yeah. Um, and I really, my method was cheaty, but I think history has proved me uh, vindicated because um, I picked the Source Engine yeah. and I'm like, well, if you work on the Source Engine, you can just use like Half-Life's textures and stuff and yeah. use their editor and basically use their props. So I had like civilians from Half-Life 2 in my game yeah. and it's basically a mod Yeah. Um, but then of course like Gary's mod and Stanley Parable are both made with Valve's engine and Valve's textures and yeah. um, our commercial products and you can do that and sell it yeah. I don't know if it's um, I think you need to talk to Valve and find out whether you can do that but yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it is a valid way of making games and so I made a game called Blunt Force Trauma <laughs> which was <laughs> it's actually it's an idea that's since been done or maybe beforehand it was done as well um, on like mobile platforms yeah. Um and there's, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a game where you are, um, I think you're just in a street or something, and just stuff falls from the sky, mm. and you have to dodge it and climb on top of it. And more stuff falls, and eventually you get to the top of the screen, but obviously it, as it's falling, you've got to get out of the way. Right. So I made like a Source Engine version um, of that idea. I hadn't seen that done before, um, but I wanted a game where you're, just, you're trapped in this really small room, and just big physics objects are falling <laughs> on your head at all times. <laughs> and so you've got to be looking up and like dodging them, and then as you... As you try and dodge the next one, the other one might be in the way because it's on the ground, but then you can kind of like jump on top of it and climb out yeah. uh, eventually through huh. the sheer number of stuff. So like each level was like a theme. The first one was like, I think skips fall on you. <laughs> and then the next one's like bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> and it never, I couldn't um, get it working well enough to actually like fill the room. So it was actually just more like phases, like for 30 seconds some bikes mm. are going to fall on you. I the see. next 30 seconds some office chairs are going to fall on you. <laughs> and uh, in the very last level, um, it ends up being like, uh, 30 seconds long or something and there's like maybe three stages to it I wanted um, uh, at the end of each level I wanted you to be sucked up into the into the sky <laughs> the sky is just like a white sky box and it's kind of this glowing light coming from yeah. there and so I couldn't get you climbing on physics objects high enough to get out but I just yeah. figured I'd, I'd use some physics to suck you up yeah. and that was really cool it felt like kind of being extracted yeah. but then the last level was I put in some Half-Life 2 uh, civilians I think maybe rebels um just standing around you and they would like there was a uh, uh, hi Dr. Freeman and stuff <laughs> but uh, the idea was like it's hard mode because you've got to try and save those guys if you can oh, like try and like catch objects out of the air so they don't fall <laughs> on the head or push them out of the way a little bit um, and that wasn't really particularly fun because it was like you had no good way of doing it yeah but um, it also didn't fail you if they died, so it was like an optional objective. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like naturally an optional objective because I don't know how to code objectives, so <laughs> that just works. Um, but then at the end of that mission, um, I put this reverse gravity force on you to suck you up. And I think there must be some bit of code in the source engine that makes like actors 
not obey physics or sort of like reset the position occasionally. Yeah. So they were being sucked up too, but then they'd reset their position to the ground. Oh. And it looked like they're all just jumping for joy. <laughs> <laughs> if you save them, they just jump up and down at the end. <laughs> it's like, yay! Works. Feature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and I think for some reason it wasn't working on the player anymore, so you just stand there and everyone just jumps up and down around you. Like, yay, well done! <laughs> but with like totally impassive faces and their arms down by their side, just... <laughs> Did you make them say yay? No, I couldn't do that. I think I had text over the um, like just hard text come up and say uh, you survive but at what cost <laughs> which um, I think maybe I can't remember if I made that only come up if someone died I probably wasn't smart enough for that probably just comes <laughs> up anyway like even if you save everybody <laughs> but at what cost all those bicycles <laughs> yeah. some bikes I guess aren't here anymore <laughs> um, so yeah what was uh, I mean you you liked working at PC Gamer right like, yeah I mean, it was great it was uh, it was definitely it was I mean I really liked the magazine, you know, when I was growing up. Um, was it was it something that, that you had, you know, read a lot and everything before you started working there? I had. I was actually um, uh, originally a fan of PC Zone, who were our rivals at the time, <laughs> owned by a different company. Yeah. Um, so that was like my dark secret when I joined. Was like, mustn't tell them I actually like was a really big Zone fanboy um, because. Like I say, I was in, into games since Ultima Underworld and Monkey Island 2, and PC Gamer didn't exist then. Right. Like, neither did PC Zone at that point. And then PC Zone was the first uh, PC games mag in the UK. Yeah. I don't know if there were games mags for other platforms. There might have been like Amiga ones, I guess. I Probably Amiga yeah. Powers before um, PC Zone. Um, and so I became a fan of that because it was the only thing out there. So yeah. um, And also it was really funny. Um, and then I only became a fan of PC Gamer much later. And um, but it wasn't like... I wasn't sort of a fanboy exactly. I didn't sort of know everybody's names and have like favorite writers. I just right. kind of liked it generally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And was it a kind of a, a more casual reader of it, I guess. Um, but yeah, it'd been not like in high school after I, I guess before I'd uh, ever tried doing any game design stuff. Um, I remember reading PC Zone and thinking like, this is, this is the dream job. Like <laughs> you just sit around and play games and then write about them. Yeah. And, um, I did get to do quite a lot of that. Like, there's a lot of obviously like organizational stuff, and um, unfortunately, the big problem with like a job at a PC games magazine, a full time one in the office, is that the things the full timers can do in the office, um, there's a lot of jobs that are really important and kind of have to be done by people who are physically here, who you can talk to and liaise with other people. Yeah. And those jobs are boring organizational tasks or making decisions about what we're going to cover and that kind of thing which you need you need people who really understand the magazine best to make those decisions yeah but they're also your core team and um that means they get to do less writing because writing is a thing we can freelance out like there's right. there's no disadvantage in getting a freelancer to do an article for you but it's almost impossible to get a freelancer to edit like a whole section of your magazine or something right. yeah and so i was always trying to resist the I was trying to resist promotion. <laughs> like, you know, the depot position would come up and I'd, like, not apply for it and there'd, there'd always be something else above me that I could be going for if I wanted to. Yeah. And I never did because once I hit section editor, that was as much organization as I wanted in my life. Like, I didn't want to do any more than that, have yeah. any more responsibility because I wanted to keep on writing. And you're not really supposed to do that. The natural career path is you get promoted out of writing and you end up as editor, for example. Right. And often the editor does almost no writing because they just don't have time because they're yeah. just completely Their job is to do all the stuff that the writers don't yeah. to do, so I, never wanted, to do yeah. I never wanted to do that and I always wanted to keep writing and I was pretty successful at that I think I um, I was very lucky and I always had um, the editors were always my friends and uh, they all kind of agreed that I should be writing rather than organizing yeah <laughs> um, 
And <laughs> Does that say something about yeah, I'm not sure. skills that At the time, I took it as a compliment, but now that I say it out loud, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> they all agreed, maybe organization was not the job for you. Hmm. Um, but so they would always fight for, for that to happen. And in fact, even the higher-ups, like the... the the rank above editor is publisher. Um, yeah. So you have a publisher, which is not a company, but a person who's in charge of a bunch of editors and a bunch of magazines. Right. And they um, are usually kind of the more corporate interests and kind of making sure the business makes sense. Yeah. But they were really supportive of that too and still wanted me to... Um, they kind of agreed, like, you are best as a writer. Yeah. So I was very lucky in being able to do that. It did mean I didn't get paid very much because <laughs> writers are just sort of inherently a junior position. Right. At, despite that being kind of the point of the thing existing. Yeah. Um, Though being like a, a full-time like staff writer is um a rarer position right like you're in, yeah. you're in a better position than, than being a freelancer i imagine yeah i don't know situation. um we sometimes have people in to um who are freelance but they've been in the office for a while um, yeah. and just working um uh all day and i think that works out as being better paid than being a full-timer oh, I see. um but hmm. you don't get like benefits i guess right but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a very profitable living. <laughs> it was like a scrape by living. Yeah. But if you're really enjoying what you're doing, then um, it's worth it. I'd yeah. much rather like I always thought when I was thinking about like should I go for a, you know a, a better position which would be more stress and more organising. And it was like if you're going to turn my job into one I don't enjoy, you need to pay me more than like twenty percent more. You need to right. pay me like a hundred percent more, two hundred percent more. Yeah, it would take a lot. more. <laughs> if I'm going to not enjoy my life anymore, it has to be a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So you. While you were still writing for PC Gamer, you started working on on Gunpoint. Um, so where did where did the urge to to start working on Gunpoint come from? Like, what was the the, the genesis of that project? I think I um, I'm sort of starting to remember that I used to want to be a game designer. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd done that one design document. That um, was for like Hitman in space. <laughs> it's a good. Well, I, now I want to hear about this design document. <laughs> were you literally floating around in space, or were you just no, in a space station? It was, yeah, like space stations. I guess it must have been partly inspired by like Jedi Knight. Mm. Um, the first Jedi Knight game has you on a space station. I think on the first level. Okay. And I really love. Oh, is it just Narshadar? Maybe it's just Narshadar. I don't know. Um, but it's like. You were in metal corridors, basically, but with uh, massive drops everywhere, and mm. uh, it felt like a really cool environment. And so I wanted a Hitman game where, like, the hits are taking place on space stations, or sometimes you go to like um, a planet and a ship down there. Yeah. And I had lots of kind of uh, very detailed ideas for how the security would work, and what kind of weapons you'd be able to have, what kind of upgrades you'd be able to have, and it was going to be sort of like a choice between: do you want to use a throwing knife that has like some kind of gravity thing where you can like you can pull it back um, oh, yeah. and they were like mapped out all the different ways you'd upgrade that and how his armor penetration values and stuff or do you want pistols or like one pistol or maybe two pistols mm-hmm. or do you want like an assault rifle and those are the only three weapon types but then each one would have upgrades they're like Borderlands actually um, you'd be able to upgrade every kind of different stat so you can decide whether with Borderlands randomizes all this stuff but mm-hmm. with me would, with this game it would like start uh, as just a basic pistol, then you'd be able to upgrade the clip capacity, the rate of fire, the kick, the right. accuracy, and all these other things, and silence and stuff. And I actually, I <laughs> had the same idea for marketing that Borderlands 2 did, which is a, a Borderlands 1, sorry, um, which is to calculate the number of possible combinations of these weapons yeah. and then like, make that a, as a selling point. And it was something like 65 billion combinations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would look great in the marketing. Um, but Turns it was, out it does, it works, <laughs> apparently. That was obviously, it had to be like a AAA game, and that was, those were the only games I knew of yeah. at all before yeah. I started PC Gamer. And I think not that long, um, 
after I joined PC Game, I played Darwinia mm, um, mm-hmm. at preview, like a really early version of it that had no tutorial, no introduction to what the hell it was. Yeah. And I'd missed, I think Introversion came down to show it to us, and I was away that day, but the code was still in the office, yeah. and um, uh, I got hold of a copy and played it um, on my home PC at the weekend, and not having had the intros to what the hell the game was, yeah. just like going into that like crazy polygonal virtual world that was uh, you know completely unlike anything I'd seen before yeah. and having no idea even who I was what I was trying to do and just messing around with the systems of that and playing around with it was so cool um, but I still didn't feel like that didn't tell me like oh you could be an indie developer because no I couldn't, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't make anything like that still if I wanted to make that game I'd need a team of 200 people <laughs> like, right. um, to be in charge of it and I kept um, I, as I started to think more about doing game development um, my objective really was to get a job at Valve because I've been there lots of times uh, to preview stuff, and I got on really well with those guys, and I, yeah. lo- I really love their philosophy and kind of the way they approach game design, and they all seem so much like calmer and more rational than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no kind of like um, big egos leading it. It's kind of just a bunch of really practical engineers kind of trying to work on problems collaboratively and being really, um, being really kind of uh, cooperative about it. Like no yeah. one kind of seizing. They're taking charge. Um, and in fact, they say, like, when people join, sometimes, like, they're eager to lead projects. And whenever they are, everyone's like, all right, <laughs> go ahead. We'd love you to lead the project because no one else wants to do it. <laughs> it's like the worst job on the team. You have to be responsible for everyone else. Um, and so, I, I, you know, just liked the people, like, the obviously huge fan of the games. Yeah, um, sure. And really wanted to work there. And then I kind of, I knew I wanted to make a game, but I didn't know... Um, like how to do it or if it was I didn't think there was any way for me personally to do one just by yeah. myself um, until I played Spelunky um, which is a platformer made in Game Maker yeah. randomly generates its levels and it's and you incredible. mean the original like PC yeah, the, the, the free original. version that yeah. came out yeah and it took a while actually for people to persuade me to play it because I'd seen I didn't really like the look of it from screenshots um, and all I knew is it was a really difficult hardcore platformer and yeah. I'm not that into like hardcore platformers um, so I uh, when I eventually did play it, I absolutely loved it, and the, the randomization completely changed it from you know if that had fixed levels, I think I'd just hate it. It would just be a really difficult platformer, and I don't like learning things by rote. I don't like right. having to repeat myself if I yeah. fail. Um, but because it's fresh every time, it just completely revolutionizes that from being like a game I would never play to a game that is you know in my top five of all time. Yeah. Um, and that made me realize that a there's a thing called Game Maker, which I didn't know before that. And it sounds like maybe a, you know anyone could use that. Yeah. Um, like it's a whole set of tools. It gives you basically everything you need except sounds, I guess. Yeah. Um, and B, that just design can make something good. Like you don't actually need to make a first-person shooter <laughs> to make a good game. Like right. There is, I don't think I'd ever played something that was so sort of... Uh, felt so doable in terms of building it. Like I didn't think I could make Spelunky exactly. I couldn't make pixel art like that, but I yeah. could... Um, I felt like I could make a game that was as complex as Blunky, roughly, um, just from uh, which. Let's be fair. You didn't. <laughs> like Blunky is yeah. crazy as far as just like the number of variables. It's insane. Yeah, um, I think the systems design of it is way more. Um, there's just lots more to inter- that can interact with each other. But there's so many different like yeah actors in the in the world, and then yeah like total procedural generation. And yeah, everything. I didn't do anything like that. But also. That game, over the course of two versions, was in development for many, many, many yeah, years yeah. and was iterated on. Um, and I mean, you worked on on uh, Gunpoint for a number of years, but 
that was your after hours thing. Yeah. You were not working full time on Gunpoint for no, not for, for three years. Um, so, but it felt like it was just sort of the ingredients seemed doable. Like I could make a dude move on screen probably, and I could probably make it so that he dies or he falls on some spikes. Right. And uh, I didn't want to make Splunky, but it just made me feel it made me realize the simple ingredients can make an incredibly good game right. if the design is good enough. And I didn't think I was a good designer, but that was what I wanted to test. Like I didn't know. I would like to be a game designer at Valve, but I don't know if I can do it at all, and there's no way for me to find out how I can do it, um, or if I'm good at it, without yeah. having a team of people I can command, and I'm not going to get to that stage. <laughs> yeah. Command is maybe a strong word. <laughs> uh, but that was how it worked in my head. It had to be like, because I wanted total creative control of anything I did, so yeah. it wasn't like, I'd like a team so I can collaboratively work with them. It was like, I need slaves to, to enact my vision, <laughs> and I will build it. Um, and so that was why it seemed so impossible because I, obviously no one would, would want to do that yeah um, and so being able like having that sort of clue that well oh, maybe there's a thing called Game Maker that you can just make a game with and maybe right. a thing made in Game Maker doesn't have to be shit it can be um, like genuinely good as long as you have a good design yeah and um, well, just seeing something that shows you that it's possible for someone yeah. to do I mean I like even even very early on when I was in college, you know, I, I I didn't realize that I wanted making games to be my job. And there was this turning point. Part of a one one factor in me realizing, oh, maybe I could do this is um, GameSpot actually did these like kind of biography like profiles of really notable game developers. And I specifically remember um, Peter Molyneux and Tim Schafer. They they profiled, and I was like huge fans of both of their their games and the. The, the biographies start out with, like, I was just a dude that didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and so I just kind of started trying stuff, and then I applied for a job, and then I kind of figured it out. And, you know, just that point of, like, oh, so these guys have made really good games. At some point, they were just dudes <laughs> that didn't know what the hell was going on. I'm that. Maybe that means I could make a game. Um, and, and you know, I, I went I went through the path of, yeah, like, getting trying to get a job on big games to be more involved with them and work my way up and everything but um yeah having that example of like oh someone has done this so that means it's possible so that means maybe i could do it yeah. uh yeah and and spelunky being um being that turning point for you makes sense because yeah well that must have been what like 2009 or something like that yeah i guess so yeah um yeah three years before i left so yeah 2009 2010 and that's kind of why i um recently did like a big breakdown of all of Gunpoint's development to yeah. kind of show not just like not only does an idiot who <laughs> never made a game before uh, was capable of doing this but also here's specifically how I did it how I approached it and here's all the tools I used and here's how I got a team together and just yeah. kind of making it as instructional and kind of approachable as possible because it wasn't like it was a lot of work but it wasn't sort of impossible there was no right. there wasn't any part of it. it was like oh shit I wish I'd never got into this because it's so so difficult yeah and there and there also I imagine there wasn't like a grand plan or you didn't yeah. do anything that that somebody else couldn't do right yeah. so being able to show people what steps what actual achievable steps you took right yeah so I'm trying to like um, I've already had like several people email to say that they, that it has inspired them to get into like not Gunpoint itself but me talking about it and showing how it was made and stuff um, yeah. made them feel like it was more approachable so that's awesome that's kind of the, the best I can hope for yeah well and, and all throughout Gunpoint's development, like you were very open about your development process and how you were making stuff and kind of showing stuff as you were you were working on it. And do you feel like 
you know, your time uh, and experience as a journalist informed how you, you know, like, got people to pay attention to the to the game, basically. I think the blogging stuff was more to do with um, just me having always been a blogger, like, mm-hmm. since before the word blog existed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had, like, a personal site where I regularly post stuff just yeah. about what I, I review films or games or I um, do, like, diary-type posts. Um, and I've always done that, and it, so it's very natural to to whatever I'm currently working on or whatever's interesting me, I want to write about it yeah. on a website. And uh, my kind of, that comes very naturally to me now. Like it doesn't take a lot of thought or planning to write a blog post. Um, and so it was very easy for me to blog the development of it. And it was quite what I naturally wanted to talk about. Yeah. I didn't think of it as a promotional thing because at the time I wasn't going to, well, first of all, initially I wasn't going to release Gunpoint. <laughs> it was going to be, well, it, maybe I was going to release it, but it was going to be a thing that I basically showed to Valve <laughs> and oh, to okay. other developers. It's like, here's how I get a job at a real developer huh. and make real games. Oh, that's like, interesting. I don't want to do this that. shitty little thing. So, um, so, so you essentially made an indie game or planned to make an indie game as like a portfolio piece. Yeah, as like an audition piece. But that's so, like, what made you think that that would be the better thing to do than, yeah, like making a mod using Valve's tools, for I, instance? Yeah, I, I dabbled like a tiny bit with, I wanted to make like a HUD mod for TF2, where mm. it just removes the HUD. Um, okay. It's just for screenshots, basically. Um, and I tried it, and it was just brutally, brutally difficult. <laughs> I tried it for like hours on end, and I just couldn't get, I got like, you know, 50% of the HUD gone, and then the other 50% is just, where the fuck is this? It's in like 16 different directories and different like, this text files I've got to edit and there's resource files I've got to change and all that yeah. stuff and I just like I don't enjoy learning uh, how people happened to organize their system you know without any help like yeah. reverse engineering like how is this laid out and what, what conventions do they use and all right. this stuff if it's not a sort of neat logical system then I don't enjoy learning it and yeah. it was really really difficult to learn it as well I couldn't find any good guides to it mm. and I basically came away with the conclusion that like modding is too hard for me I can't do it um, I've made levels before and that was uh, I was okay with that but that wasn't obviously I wanted to make new mechanics and things Yeah. and so it wasn't until Game Maker uh, that I felt like I had a way of doing that um, and yeah I, I kind of already knew from just like I guess logic and also hearing Valve talk about it that's the best way to um, if you want to be a game designer to like just design a game and make yeah. it <laughs> like, no, don't, don't sort of uh take a course and try and get a qualification and then try and take like a sort of planned out career path just um, start making something and and then show it people yeah. and then after I kind of after it started like once I had the hacking in uh, when I was planning the game that wasn't part of the plan I didn't know uh, I didn't have an idea for how hacking would work or if it would even have hacking it was just going to be like well then what was the initial idea for, for well okay so here's my understanding hence the name <laughs> the impetus for gunpoint was that you would point your gun at people <laughs> to like hold them up that was yeah that was sort of a later edition as well but the name wasn't there originally like the first oh, idea right, i had okay. was like you're gonna be like a robot and you were gonna like i think you're in space yeah you're in space <laughs> <laughs> then, i don't know i didn't really have a clear picture of it but you're gonna be like in a little spaceship and you'd be able to you climbing on walls and ceilings was the first thing hmm. um yeah and being able to jump by clicking the mouse. I wanted you to jump towards the cursor because mm. uh, I don't see that done a lot and I think it could be satisfying and I wanted it to, like, to obey physics and feel physical. Yeah. And I thought that would be fun. That was the only idea I had really. It's just like, uh, I've got to keep it small so I just want to make a little 2D game where you click to jump and that feels nice. It has a nice physical 
qualities to it. Yeah. And so for the theme, my first thought was like, you could be a, I don't know, a robot in a spaceship and then you like, you crush people's heads with your robot claw. <laughs> and like, I wanted you to like, as you're climbing on the ceiling, I thought you could drop heavy objects on people because mm. as I guess I've already revealed, I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Having made blunt force trauma. Um, you pick up bicycles and just drop well, them For some reason heads. it was fridges in this. So I thought, like, well, you should be able to pick up a fridge and drop it on someone's head. That's, that's, a, that's a design goal for this game. <laughs> and then, effective, at least. That would effectively ruin yeah. someone's day. <laughs> have a fridge dropped on them. Well, it's like the toilet being the thing that you throw. In yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm a huge something. fan of the gravity gun. Yeah. And in Half-Life 2 Deathmatch, I play only with a gravity gun. And I'm a radiator specialist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just r- radiators off the wall, and it has the, like the perfect heft to it, and like the size and shape is really good. It can yeah. skim across things and rebound. Um, so yeah, I really like physics. Um, but I, then I start to think like I kind of sketched out a dude, like the robot dude, and then mm-hmm. like for some reason I end up drawing with a trench a trench coat. Mm-hmm. And then I had the idea that he could be pretending to be like a PI. And I think that my idea for a name at that point was um, Human and Sons Carbon Based Detective Agency. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that just be like oh, that's really good. They'd be pretending to be human, but in a really lame way, like just like not even. I'm surprised. Barely I'm surprised anybody. you didn't at least put that like in the background of a level <laughs> or something. Yeah, actually, that's yeah, totally, a good phrase. I totally forgot about it. And then at some point, I, I was trying to think about plots and like what kind of who are your clients and what, who are you trying to help. Yeah. And I just it really didn't sit right for me that this robot would care about his clients. Like, why why do you give a shit about these people's like it was going to be like cheating husbands and stuff, yeah. like kind of more typical PI things. Um, and then it would get into my more serious like hostage situations and things um, and then I was just like why are you a robot there's no reason for you to be secretly a robot I would I mean I would think that at that point the motivation would be what does a robot want and how can it yeah. get it by, but by had, doing these cases but that seems like it would be a very roundabout way for a robot yeah. to get <laughs> I don't know like yeah uh, power cells or something I had no answers and for that question and also I kind of think like the reason that I got stuck was the same reason it appealed to me in the first place, which is this just doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, that was why it was funny, is that like, it doesn't make any sense for a robot to pretend to be a PI, but yeah. that would be cool. Uh, so yeah, what, then it sort of... Except, that, maybe that's kind of the premise of Blade Runner, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I actually that. didn't even think about that. <laughs> Spoilers for Blade Runner, I guess. Uh, theoretically. Um, so yeah, it, like, it took transition very organically from a robotic game to a sort of PI game and yeah. then at that point it's going to be called Private Dick because you're going to be PI and you're going to be kind of an asshole <laughs> um, and yeah still didn't have any I was very fuzzy on what you'd be doing in the missions I, I really wanted it it was actually really inspired by you know that bit in Deus Ex where you go I think might be to Hell's Kitchen for the second time mm-hmm. and um, some NSF dudes are holding some people hostage in the Tom yeah. and you can like there are a bunch of different ways to go about it but you can like sneak up the elevator shaft and try and take them both out yeah. uh, but if there's two of them and they both have guns to, to hostages heads and if either of them sees you they shoot their hostage right. and rescuing both hostages at once is really difficult and that was kind of my model I was like I, I want to make a game about those, those sticky situations yeah. where something could go really wrong and I was going to let you fail missions so like if your mission was, might be to rescue those two people yeah. and if they both die you just end the mission and carry on and then your client doesn't like you anymore right. <laughs> and we'd have to like branch from there and then maybe there'd be the missions later on where if the client does like you they might help you out and be in the mission um, yeah. or if they hate you they won't or yeah. you know there could be consequences like that so much more like branching path kind of yeah. stuff as far as what the actual mission content would be yeah 
And then as it came together, I started to realize that was way more work than I had time for. It's a lot like, of work. I can't make levels that you don't play. You that's, have to play all of my that's levels. That's making a lot of stuff <laughs> people never see, which is the, the problem with branching content generally. Yeah. Uh, by the way, yes, that situation in Deus Ex is really good. Uh, I replayed Deus Ex probably a year or two, probably a couple of years ago now. Um, and I remember being in that situation, and I, I think that my solution I was really happy with anyway, which was just throw a gas grenade over yeah. there and everybody like and and so you go over and then you just like you know stun baton the guys while they're they're coughing and then because of how Deus Ex's like kind of state based AI works the civilians are running around going oh my god oh, oh, and they're scared of you until <laughs> the gas wears off and then they're like oh thank you so much <laughs> but that's fair enough and, yeah it was it was great um, systems working as intended yeah um I really like the kind of um, the gas grenades like the merciful option but they also kind of usually end up choking you a bit and it's kind of like the hero thing to do is let's just fucking choke everybody myself included yeah. and just take the damage <laughs> um, so, so yeah that was so that was going to be one of the the core kind of um, I guess conflict conflict styles um, or you know situation archetypes in, in Gunpoint yeah um did it? Do you feel like there were parts of that initial inspiration that survived in the in the game that you ended up shipping? It was really just the idea of you being a sort of guy for hire who solves tricky situations, and I was. I mean, that, like spoilers for Gunpoint because we do spoilers <laughs> for everything we talk about on this show. But that that was kind of what a lot of um, the very last level of the game was about. Was like it within the level there were multiple ways to approach like dealing with the last couple guys in the in the game yeah um, yeah so there's yeah and it was kind of based on that whole like ooh this is tricky because if I go up here I'm going to get caught and if I go this way I'm going to get caught so what's the solution that makes neither of those things happen and so forth yeah um, that very last bit there's like I think there's maybe eight different ways to take out Gessler yeah and um, the Hightower thing there aren't really a lot of options although actually there's there's an emergent option which is um <laughs> I've discovered it before release and I made sure it worked, um, but it was a tester, I think, who first found it. it was um, uh, Hightower. Um, Hightower only appears if you choose to side with Rook. Um, so some people won't know what I'm talking about, even if they have to go point. Um, well, it, for, for me, it's that there's one guy who's kind of the, the bodyguard yeah. dude, and then there's your, your target. And so you're saying that, that the, the kind of bodyguard guy yeah. doesn't always show up. He only shows up if you side with Rook because okay. um, he's the killer that you're after, and it's right. his identity that you get from Rook. Right, like, right. He, she makes him be there. She gets him to yeah. uh, calls him in, basically pretending to be Gessler, yeah. so that you can catch him because he's the, he's the person who kind of like framed you in the first place, yeah. sort of, and he's the person who um, killed Selena. And so it's kind of your reward for siding with her, even though you have to do something fairly morally compromised to get that information from her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he you go up the stairs and he pounces at you, and the idea, the sort of the theory for that scene is I, I need him to pounce on you because. I can't. He has no AI. He doesn't know what the hell to do if this doesn't work. <laughs> like, right. This is his only move. All he can do is pounce on you and then punch you in the face. And I wanted that kind of um, reversal of you've been knocking people through windows all, all game. Yeah. So you're going to get knocked through a window and you're going to get to find out what that feels like. <laughs> right. And um, there will be no way out of it. And then you kind of you're in a situation where you you can punch him back, but it doesn't seem to be working. And you have the option of shooting him, and so you have to kind of make an on-the-spot decision of uh, do I actually want to shoot another human being? And if you've been trying to stick to a rule of not doing that, then you're kind right. of you're in a tricky situation. Punching does work eventually. Uh, for anyone who hasn't discovered that, you can just keep hammering. Punching, yeah. But it's, it's coded 
to only work at the last minute. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's not a number of punches or a speed of punching. It's just your punch just before you get knocked out. That one works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do. Um, so it's meant to feel like desperate and like, ah, thank God it did work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you, as you come up the stairs, I checked that it wasn't possible to shoot him or to pounce on him or to, you know, damage him anyway. Right. But it turns out if you come up the stairs and then immediately jump vertically upwards, he still jumps you and he just goes under you. He goes straight through the window and then just vanishes forever. You just never see him again. <laughs> He's like too embarrassed to come back. <laughs> oh, screw it. <laughs> I can't go back up there. Come on. Maybe you landed on something over there where you can't see. It's a, it doesn't quite work well because it doesn't break the window because that that's actually quite difficult to mm. code. Um, windows are very, very, <laughs> like, tricky. Um, but I was happy with it being in there just because it makes a certain amount of sense. <laughs> like, yeah. If you did dodge him, he, he might just leave. Like, yeah. he doesn't really want to fight you. He's not there. Like, he's been called under false pretenses um, and he just wants to get away with all the bad shit he's done. So right. <laughs> he would probably just run away. Yeah. He, he missed his chance. He's just going to see if he can just... <laughs> run for it at this point it reminds me of like have you ever seen a cat fall off a chair and mm-hmm. then try and pretend they meant to do it yeah. <laughs> like, that's Hightower he's, he's the cat <laughs> falls off the chair and he's like yeah I, I was going anyway <laughs> so it sounds like it sounds like the the game I mean obviously the stuff you talked about so far it evolved a lot from the very first idea yeah. which is a pretending robot <laughs> which it did not become but even then yeah um I would say that, you know, the core mechanics of the game are, yeah, jumping and sticking to, to ceilings and surfaces and, and climbing around. And then, uh, obviously, the the puzzles are largely made up of the cross-link. Yeah. Um, which, you know, if, if, if you haven't played it or don't remember, um, you can basically rewire any electrical um, device within, within a level. And the levels take place in, like, office buildings and other facilities where there are, you know, lights and automatic doors and alarms and, and various stuff. Yeah. Um, so you can connect any of those things to any of those things and they will trigger each other. Right. Depending on which way around they're hooked up. So you can make like a light switch, open a door instead of turning on a light or yep. so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, when, what was the, the impetus for, for taking that approach to like hacking and, and affecting the environment? It was, um, Kind of as it got more Deus Ex-y, <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of like, once it became you're a human and you're just trying to break into buildings, um, uh, I, I knew, I kind of wanted you to be able to do it in several different ways. That was the, you know, one of the key things I love about Deus Ex. Yeah. And so I knew hacking kind of needed to be in there. And then I was just trying to think, like, what would be a cool hacking system? What do I like doing in games that let you hack? Yeah. And I like hacking turrets in Deus Ex is really cool. I like kind of turning something that was meant to stop me into something that um, then attacks the enemy instead. Right. And so I was trying to think of like that kind of tinkering feeling, but can we kind of make it more universal? Can it be something that you could just do to everything and yeah. give you more kind of like flexibility or like just what's this kind of, what's the simplest rule that gives us the most general application of that that can be used in as many different ways as possible? Yeah. And I think I probably was um, uh, slightly inspired by uh, doing level design because I remember in like the build engine, um, or maybe the Quake engine, or maybe both. If you want to hook up a light switch to, uh, sorry, a light switch, a switch to a door. <laughs> there are all light switches in my brain. So that's, that's the only switch in gunpoint. There's always a light switch. Um, if you hook up a switch to a door, you have it like broadcast its signal on like channel 20, and then mm. you set the door to channel 20. Oh, and so an input on channel 20 and a, a door on channel 20 um, knows that they should be connected to each other. And right. you know, I think in that engine, everything is either an input or an output. 
Um, so a button is always an input and a, a door is always an output. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Gunpoint, um, everything is an input and an output. Well, not everything has a sort of uh, has a natural way to trigger it, but everything, if a signal triggers it and it's connected to something else, it passes the signal along as well. I see. Um, and even a switch can be triggered by something else. So you can right. make, you can set up a camera to flick a switch. <laughs> right. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, but um, yeah. I wanted everything to be like universal in that way. Yeah. Well, because so it's like you could like the the more direct thing to do in that situation would just be have the camera trigger the thing that the switch is going to trigger. Yeah. But that said, if someone is not thinking of the most uh, most direct route and they try hooking it up to the switch, then obviously you want that to be yeah. viable, right? Because otherwise it's like, we won't let you do that because it's not the best thing to do, you yeah. know? And that's that's really difficult to uh, convey, I think, conceptually. I had a great moment with that where um, I had hooked up, like, I think it's just lights which are my floor to the there's lights on a different floor. Yeah. And... Um, I turned them off and the guard walked towards the light switch and I disconnected it to um, make sure he couldn't turn the lights back on. And then I think I changed my mind about what I was going to do and as he went to use the broken light switch, I turned the lights on and he just acted like the light switch worked. He didn't try it another time. He was like, okay, the lights are on now. just carried on about his patrol. Yes, that's what you should do. He just looked at the evidence and it seemed to work. So he would just carry on. And like the timing would have been slightly different to how he expected it to work, but like his code just he tries the light switch if the lights are still off in half a second he tries the light switch again and then after three times he he gives up he has I think it's uh, his variable is called patience which is a patience (laughs) of three after three (laughs) presses the light switch he's like fuck this I just walk around in the dark for a while (laughs) Um, so yeah I think the um, there's that there's also like uh, when I was quite young my dad gave me an electronics kit that was a bunch of inputs and outputs and a bunch of wires and you could choose how to connect them mm, <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's embarrassingly similar to the game I made <laughs> like, oh shit I think I might have just copied that completely but at the time it felt like completely my idea I was like I just invented this from, purely from my head and it's yeah. totally an original thing and I felt like I, also, I was pretty sure someone else must have done it like because I hadn't seen it but I figured like there must be some indie game out there that's done this exact thing of dragging yeah, yeah. lines between stuff um and there have been since Gunpoint I've seen uh, or since I since I put Crosslink in Gunpoint I've seen a few different um, games that have something similar Starbound I think has the, the closest thing I've seen mm. um, I don't know when they put this in but um, uh, you build things it's like a two area game like a side on Minecraft um, where you can build buildings and you build doors and switches and stuff and then once you build the doors and switches to decide how they're linked up I think you just drag a line I haven't mm. played it but I've seen a video where someone seems to be just dragging a line from yeah, a switch yeah. to a door and hooking it up which is awesome that seemed, that's the coolest way to do it yeah. there's another creative game like that that um, I think the guy emailed me um, to say that he'd been working on it like before he heard of Gunpoint and um, it has I think technically it does work like that, but it's much harder to to pass when you're watching it. I couldn't really tell how I similar see. it was to Gunpoint because yeah. it's like I could tell he's placing electric things, and I could tell he has some kind of vision mode where he hooks them up. But the lines aren't direct; they're kind of they're routed through like circuits and stuff, mm-hmm. so it's hard to see which things are hooked up. I see. Uh, but I think that's the same concept. Yeah. And then there's there's actually another game out there. I can't remember what it's called, but um, where you have powerful jumping boots <laughs> and you can rewire switches to turrets and stuff and press them to defeat guards yeah. and has a whole bunch of very like superficial similarities to Gunpoint as well as the fundamental similarity and I don't know whether that was um, inspired or not but yeah. that was before it came out so it wasn't like a kind of um, uh, like a, you know inspired by Gunpoint success or anything right, I, yeah. think. I wouldn't be like it's not impossible that the guy just independently had those ideas yeah. um, but I've still never seen one that was before that was already out there when I started working on it Right. Um, which is weird because <laughs> it seems 
to me, it seems kind of obvious. Like it's the mo- it's the simplest way to do it. Like if you want to have the player hack electric things, then the most simple way seemed to me to you are going to have to decide how these things are wired up as a level designer. Yeah. So why not just let him mess around with it or her? Um, just give him the same power you have to connect anything to anything. Yeah. And obviously you have to limit it a little bit to make sure that you can make puzzles with it. Right. Um, Which is how, that's what you used the different like colors of circuits for. Yeah. Right. And that was, I think that that kind of came with the idea. I just sort of, you know, I knew I would have to limit it. And I knew that was having in isolated circuits. Just right. Mirrors the way electronics work in the first place, yeah. um, to some extent. Although what you're doing to them is is ambiguous. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's unclear. How, I mean, I guess it implies some sort of wireless signal. Yeah. My my theory. Thing. I think it's it's touched on a bit by Rook. Um, is that everything is actually wired to everything physically? Like there is a wire. There's a, a wire connection between everything that's on the same circuit. Yeah. And then all the actual logical connections are handled by software, and it's mm. the software you're hacking. Okay. And your your vision mode for doing it is pretty artificial. Yeah. That's, that's the application you're using, like the sort of hacking application. It's like you're opening and closing gates between potential yeah. parts of the, the system that are already physically wired together. Yeah. Hmm. All right. And so that's why the like the wires don't look like wires. They're just lines. Yeah. And they go through space and they go through the walls. And, sure. Um, uh, I didn't try and make them look like they were actually the wiring of the building because it wouldn't make sense that you can change that. I yeah. could have, if I really wanted to explain it to you better and kind of make sure people understood what was happening under the skin, I could have shown wires between everything, like dark wires, and then shown the current flowing between them. Right. But I don't think... <laughs> I just I no, didn't do I, anything I, that wasn't absolutely essential. No, <laughs> I think, and honestly, like, people... I think with mechanics like that, people quickly internalize just the the logic of the world. Yeah. You know? It's just like, oh, I guess I can connect things to each other. And you're just like, okay. And you don't really think more deeply about like, but yeah. how? <laughs> how is this light being attached to this camera, you know? I think people like really care about their abilities and how they work and they need to know how they work instead yeah. of like, what can I do and what can't I do? But they are much less concerned than I thought about does this make sense? Could, could this be feasibly possible? Yeah. Like doors opening when you flick a switch is pretty strange, actually. <laughs> like There aren't that many doors that like just in a normal office that would swing open violently if they received <laughs> an electrical signal. Like, right. uh, it's, I don't know if I ever mentioned it, but it, they're meant to be like electronically, I guess, hydraulic doors or something. Yeah. Um, but there's no, I don't think there's any visual hint that that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, but people do it and it hits a guard in the face and it makes a slapping noise and they're like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> well, couldn't care less. About something that you can rely on. Like, that, you know, if you're if you're savvy enough about how players react to that stuff, you know, you can, like, with Gone Home, when, we were tra- when I was trying to figure out what, how we were going to justify there being audio diaries in the game, you know, I was like, oh, are there, like, actual torn-out diary pages or did she really record them on a tape and you're finding the tapes or... Yeah. And it was... And I had gone through all that stuff and at some point I was like, what if you just find relevant things and then you just hear it? And then later you find a diary and that's what they were coming from. And so it's kind of a cool reveal if you put the pieces together. But at the time it's just like, it's just, you know, you don't know why. And, and people, you know, and I was like, People just kind of be okay with it, it's, I assume, um, or or it won't be going on for so long that without being, I think I think my originally I was I was thinking that there would be like multiple diaries, like you would find a book for every like all sub right. part of the game, like you'd find one in Sam's room, and that's where all the ones from bef- all the entries from before that came from. So it would have been explained a yeah, lot earlier. You would, you would know that was how you were hearing them, but you wouldn't have found the next book yet. Right, but instead it went all the way to the to the end and and yeah it's one of those things where when a player is first getting acclimated into a game 
they're open to pretty much any <laughs> any, any set of like they, they're figuring out what the rules are, right? So the first time that they find one of these things, they just hear a voice and they're like, "Huh?" And then they find another one and they hear a voice and they're like, "Oh, so I guess sometimes you find stuff and then you hear one of these things." Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like I don't really know why that is, but I guess that's how this game works. And then later, when you actually rationalize it and like address, like, "Yes, we know that was weird," but finally you know what the reason yeah. was and they're like, "Oh, cool." You know, <laughs> it's, you it's extra a, credit for this. It's a bonus, you know, instead yeah. of so yeah, I, th- I think that. When you kind of get people on board for how something works, even if it's weird or arbitrary seeming, um, at the beginning of the experience, they just kind of slot it in with all the other rules of like, oh, and I can crouch, and, you know, the, yeah. the basic kind of stuff. Yeah, I think they don't question it too much. With Gone Home, I, I kind of I didn't notice it being weird when I first played it. Um, I think because it's quite a cinematic technique to kind of have, like, you find something significant and then the, a voiceover happens... Um, and particularly like the tone of the voiceover is quite like a sort of movie that would be like you know a girl telling telling her story right, to yeah. the viewer right, in, those, yeah. in those movies you don't know why the hell you're hearing this <laughs> like how, right. who is she talking to is she being interviewed or something yeah. I don't know. so uh, I, I took it on the, like in my stride at that point but then I remember because uh, I played the first half by itself and then when right. I finished it a little while after I was like how was I actually hearing all that stuff? Like, <laughs> what was going on there? Yeah. And it wasn't, uh, it still didn't bother me, but I was just kind of curious. Like, should I understand that? Am I meant to? Right. Um, I guess that there could have been a risk that the player might think it was them talking. <laughs> which, which we actually, we had that, that problem early in development um, where people, you know, we, we sent, we sent stuff out to play testers and they would be like, they thought it was themselves right. talking or that, that they were playing as, the younger sister, and then it was, like, the older sister you were hearing. You know, just, like, who was talking and who they were um, was was uh, confusing to, to some people. And so we did a number of things to try to reinforce what was going on. I think by the time we, we shipped, we addressed it successfully. But, like, we did a lot more with, like, before we shipped, we added in more stuff at the beginning that says, like... Like, we added the luggage that's sitting next to where you, you spawn in, and it has a luggage tag that has your name on it. Yeah. And then, you you know, you can look in your inventory and see your passport and this other stuff that has your name on it and everything. And then we actually, when we went back in to do the final round of voice recording, we rewrote the very first audio diary because it had been much more vague, like, in her wording, like, kind of speaking in the third person, just generally, like talking to herself kind of thing and we rewrote it so it's very explicitly like dear katie you've left and that makes (laughs) me feel certain ways but i'm just going to keep carrying on you know and and i think that um that yeah that that was actually the bigger risk with with that technique was was yeah people being unsure not only where they're coming from but like who is speaking and (laughs) who is being addressed and, and so forth so that's something that we did actually that we had to do some specific work to to try to to fix i guess apparently at the end of portal 2 originally you were meant to just say one word i think i think yeah <laughs> like it's a bit where you have to confirm the override that you mm. want to get rid of um spoilers of portal 2 weekly yeah. <laughs> um and you have to say yes to do it and i think there was like a an on-screen prompt to sort of like press space to say yes or something and they had Chell actually saying yes yeah. and players just didn't understand <laughs> just like just didn't process even though they've been asked to say something and they did say something yeah. they were just like who's that yeah. <laughs> what's that voice I don't know 
<laughs> and then and then I, I assume maybe then they turned that into the really good joke at the beginning <laughs> that was press space to oh, say yeah, hello yeah. and then you and press it and you jump instead. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh I guess there's something wrong here. Um okay, well, let's just carry on. <laughs> so not that just like fucking with the player and them enjoying it. Yeah. Um so so yeah, so so Gunpoint had all of these these really interesting systems and and like you're saying they were inspired in a lot of ways by like you know deus ex kind of like having multiple methods of overcoming environmental obstacles and and non-lethal and lethal uh, uh approaches and all like that kind of stuff but also um something that was um really well received about the game was yeah the 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 writing of the characters and the exchanges that um you would have between primarily between missions was there any yeah was there any text that came up during missions there was the, in the very intro you're talking to somebody on the phone right. um but there's no choices in the in-game dialogue i was going right. to do that that was one of my things to like on my to-do list was make the uh, dialogue choices work in game yeah um but it's a completely different system for showing dialogue in game i couldn't find a way to like merge the two and it would have been a bunch of extra work right. um and in the end I moved away. I had a lot more scripted scenes planned to happen in the missions. Yeah. And then when I started making those, I realized they are a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> Getting anything scripted to happen in a level while the player is still in control is yeah. just horribly difficult. Even if the player can't get to it, even if there aren't any problems with him interacting with it, just having it all unfold in certain timescale and things. Right. Um, I found that really difficult. I found it really boring to do, like it's sort of annoying and fiddly. Um, Game Maker is one of the things that it's n- much worse at than Unity is you have to compile it to play it. Mm. And compiling at this point was taking like 30 seconds or more. Yeah. Uh, so every single change had to be, it was a 30 second wait to see if it was any good. Right. And I ended up doing things like, you know, adding a key to the game to change the length of this, this scene. <laughs> so I could just like press reload and then tap that key three times and then like it would display the figure on screen and then yeah. I'd write it down and then... And, I hated doing it and also I'm just sort of philosophically against it <laughs> sure. I don't even like these scenes in games I yeah. hate scripted sequences yeah, I yeah. want to get them out of the games and here I was like just because the plot needed it I was you know having to force things to happen yeah. and so I had like um, I had a bunch more planned um, and I ended up scrapping everything except the intro and the ending yep. um, and if you count it there's one bit where you, you listen in on Jackson talking on the phone but it's literally yeah. just some dialogue appears while you're listening and that was fairly easy Yeah. Uh, but the intro I, I, and think, the, I think that's a good I think that's a good call I mean <laughs> as, as someone who only scripted an intro and an outro in, in my own <laughs> game as well because I well because one thing about it is like at least for for Gone Home like it's a little different because it's literally like an unbroken you know player input uh, yeah. uh, experience from the beginning to the end but still you're, I think that, you know, players are, I feel like there is nothing philosophically wrong with having some non-interactive stuff to get you into the experience and then some to get you back out, you know, but when you're yeah. in the middle, it's a lot harder to say like, okay, now put down the controller for a little bit, yeah. you know, because you really have to justify that in, in some way, either because it's like the content is so important or because there's some kind of fictional justification like you got knocked down and you yeah. know whatever um but but you know like I, I think that setting the scene and then like dropping the curtain those are totally legit places to to say okay we're we're going to to you're gonna take your hands off of the controls um but but everywhere in between that you can say you know you are interacting with this thing in like a consistent way i think is is really valuable. Um, And, you know, like, in in Gunpoint, you had these multiple phases of going from a mission to kind of a briefing 
conversation thing and, yeah. and buying your, your gear and upgrades and everything and then back into a mission. But it was a, a consistent set of interactive loops, you know, or phases. You know, it, even the, the, the dialogue sequences, it wasn't just sit back and listen to this dialogue. Yeah. It was like you so were making choices, right, yeah. you know, all the way throughout. Yeah, I was surprised that they went down as well as they did um, because I kind of... The plot was... Um, um, I was pretty happy with it, but I kind of... I'd sort of decided I wouldn't do another story-based game. <laughs> I was like, shit, story's really... It's just really hard to get story to work with a game and I i felt the scripted things that I had planned, I thought they were necessary to get people engaged with the story. Yeah. And so since I'd taken them all out, except for two... Um, I figured people wouldn't be as engaged with the story and that it kind of like it would really show that there's this story stuff happening between the missions but then when you go to a mission it's always just get to a computer and hack it and in fact lots of testers had said in early test versions like I hope you're going to add other objectives or something it would be nice to have different things to do than just hack computers and that was always the plan it was going to be like a hostage situation or it was going to be um, this tricky thing to resolve or like a kidnapping someone or I don't know like yeah. other things involving humans and special situations and it just got like later and later and later and carrying them around and stuff yeah. yeah it got later and later and later and it was always just computers and I, there's like in the end there's a one sequence of missions where you're stealing a prototype and you to, it's like you just steal prototypes for that whole quest line like yeah. you steal this one then you steal it back and then you steal two of them and then you steal this and then which is still effectively you go to a point yeah, you go click to a place on it and press on it and to complete yeah. it and I think probably if I'd just done like every mission had its own objective type people would have been happy I think they they weren't asking to have an interesting mini game or something they were just saying like I don't want to always be hacking a computer yeah. and I kind of I didn't really listen to them I just kind of ignored it <laughs> and um, the, a lot of the scripted scenes I was going to have took out and then ended up those missions you just hack a computer or you, you pick up a thing yeah. and people didn't complain about that and also they really liked the dialogue yeah. and so now I'm suddenly thinking shit like, I've got to do another story well, I <laughs> like, think, and I want to yeah. I want to write another story but then I've got to face the difficult challenge of like how do I get that to work with a game because I think I only the way I did it in Gunpoint was just keep them very strictly separate and that was okay but it did mean that um, it was not super engaging the plot I don't think the plot didn't really affect what you're doing in the levels and what you did in the levels sometimes affected the plot a little bit but in yeah. quite abstract ways and so I don't think I don't think the game made you care more about the plot and I don't think the plot made you care more about the game but some mm -hmm. people happen to like both and happen yeah. to enjoy the whole experience well I think that I mean I feel like the the real value from the the story parts of um, Gunpoint they were much more like the the the, the quality and the characterization of the dialogue, you know, like for its own sake, more so than what plot points it was telling, yeah. you know, or, or why exactly you were encountering these characters. It was more like clever turns of phrase and, and, and the different characters clearly having different personalities through how they're written and everything. Like, I think that was the biggest thing that I at least connected with was that it was like, Oh, this isn't just rote kind of, expository dialogue it's like these are clearly individual characters that have their own personality you know yeah yeah I was definitely going for that and I'm glad it worked um, but it was kind of like the plan definitely like there was no jokes in the plan <laughs> except I guess that like in the police quest line you're investigating yourself and that's kind of a joke right. but it's like yeah. I didn't play that for laughs that much in, in the actual dialogue so all of it was just like, I had this plot structure, I know what I need, I know what the point of this mission is, I know what you do after it, and I know what the overall arc is, and um, what the consequences of, of siding with this person is versus yeah. siding with that person. And then I sat down to write it, and then as I wrote it, I kind of thought, oh, there's an opportunity for a funny line here, and then a funny line here. And I was, one of them is, um, I was 
someone asks you to steal something and you uh, want your response to be to ask them, oh, who am I stealing it from? Um, and they wrote, uh, from whom? And I was like, that, that sounds kind of formal. Like, I don't yeah. want to like, force you to say from whom. So now I wrote it's from who. And they're like, oh, that's technically wrong. It should be from whom. Like, I'm just going to let you choose that thing. And that's like the, the best feedback I've got from all of the writing in the game is people fucking love that choice. <laughs> I get to decide whether I say from whom or from who. Yeah. I, and it also, I, I, think it, like, I think everyone chooses from whom. Because the fact that I'm giving you the choice lets you kind of know that the other one's wrong. Right? Right. I wouldn't yeah. be saying from whom if that wasn't the correct thing to say. But if I just left that as the only choice, I think people would be like, I don't want to say that. Yeah, that sounds poncy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, that's, that's one of those things that I think people connect the most with is something that, that allows them to, to have some, some ex- you know, player expression, but in a way that feels human and like aware of them yeah. you know because like you can have player expression as far as like do you want this character to live or die yeah. you know but like it's a different kind of player expression which is like how do you want to present yourself <laughs> you know it's like an interesting thing to let the player say to the game that you don't yeah. really get an option to do very much and that's that's what most of the dialogue choices are there's very little actual branching like yeah. sometimes if you tell a joke I let you follow that joke down a path for a while and right. have some, some back and forth but it's never um, there's only one plot line where actually there's two where your choices actually influence the outcome of the plot like someone you know you pick a side or you um, blow your cover um, in the police quest line and incriminate yourself by what you said Yeah. but most of the time it's not that important what you say and it's just kind of I want to give you the choice of what kind of secret agent you want to be do you want right. to be a, an asshole do you want to be a kind of down to business type player yeah um and do you want to be kind of a bit of an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely, yeah. It's, like, it's really cool because you get to... as a doofus. <laughs> if you write... Um, I don't know. Like It's actually quite unusual, I think, to have dialogue choices in a game that isn't an adventure game. Like There aren't that many yeah. games where, like, Gunpoint is not an adventure game. The plot wasn't that important. The plot wasn't even in there for yeah. the first two years. And it was when in, we were in the IGF. That was the version with no plot. So it was yeah. already, like, that was the game. And then when I added the plot, I put in multiple choice dialogue things because... Like I say, Monkey Island 2 was one of my first right. PC games. Um, yeah, and there were dialogue trees in, in you know, Deus Ex. Like you would go up to a character yeah, true. and be able to to be kind of expressive in, in that way in some cases, or you need to be nice to somebody yeah. or be kind of an asshole. Something Get I remember, gun or... or <laughs> Get gun or... Yeah. <laughs> or the, uh, the crossbow. The crossbow, yeah. Um, sniper rifle. Yeah. Uh, the answer in that case is... Get gun, yeah, because you, you can blow can, open doors can, and stuff. Well, and because you can get a sniper rifle and a crossbow within oh, yeah, the same sort of the beginning of the game. <laughs> what um, a shitty player choice there is in that sense. This is rubbish. But uh, tangent, um, another game that was that feels like it was kind of influenced by 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 that lineage um, in kind of a, a sidelong way and had dialogue choices was uh, the Riddick game, Escape from Butcher Bay. Oh, yeah. um, and it had like interesting quest structures and side quests and and all this kind of stuff. Like it was a weird, cool game in a lot of ways. And something that that kind of has influenced me in some ways, or at least I think about sometimes, is how they in, they they emphasize the disconnect between the player and the character in some ways. Where it's like you're making dialogue choices, but Riddick, who's like the the gruff, sarcastic badass, is always the one who's going to execute on them. You know, yeah. so it's like. You are directing him, but you can't make him do something that Riddick wouldn't do or whatever, Did right? you choose, like, sort of rough outlines of what you're going to say, and then he says the specific line? It, yeah, well, the, the, way the, the way that the dialogue uh, trees are presented is, yeah, there's a summary 
that you choose, and then he does a he he delivers a line that that is based on that. And so my favorite instance of this is there's somebody who's like, I really need your help. Will you go to this place and get me my thing so I can break out of space jail? I don't know what the hell it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this guy who's like, I really need your help. Can you go do this thing? And the dialogue choices facing the player are yes or no. Mm. And if you say no, you don't do the quest. But you know, you click yes, and then Riddick goes maybe, <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant. It's so simple, uh, and and I thought that was that was really that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so I having, like having that kind of. Um, yeah. What I was going to say actually was that the for me the fun of writing uh, dialogue choices was loads of cool things I love about it. But um, in particular, I like that I get to tell you all three sides of this guy's personality. Right. Like, they're optional. You could just always pick the craziest option or, like, the stupidest option. But, like, if I want to... The sort of my... The concept for Conway as a character is, like, he's a bit like Indiana Jones, but he's just a little bit incompetent. <laughs> and yeah. He's sort of, like, he wants to be cool, but he's kind of, like, um, an idiot. And he'll kind of try and cover for it, but he doesn't really mind if someone... If he doesn't cover for it very well. Yeah. And so that's kind of... There's lots of different sides to that. And if I was writing a movie, I'd have to have a moment where he's cool and a moment where he fucks it up and a moment where he covers for himself and that kind of thing. But with dialogue options, I can just put all three of those on screen all the time. Right. And so you really get the sense of it. You know that he's a guy who... You can who see might what else he's cool. thinking, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think um, Sean Vanneman actually talked about this with The Walking Dead because I remember Chris Remo was... Um, he wasn't sure if in The Walking Dead... Slight spoilers for The Walking Dead. <laughs> um, uh, for episode one. Yeah. Um, you are able to say at one point whether you committed the murder that you, you've accused of at the start and the option is to say yes or you can not say anything or um, uh, you can you know just uh, keep it a secret yeah. and Chris wasn't sure if you had done it like even after seeing that he was right. like I, I didn't know if I was guilty and Sean was saying that their, their kind of um, philosophy of telltale for dialogue options is everything you're presented with is something that's floating through your character's head or something he might say. Yeah. So if one of your options is to fess up to this crime, then that means you did do it because yeah. that's the thing that you would say in that situation. So I, I still don't know. It was interesting to me that he had such a, that Chris had such a different take on it and that that wasn't conveyed by yeah. the, the choice. And so from I, I, think I, I had that same feeling when I played Walking Dead. I, I don't think that I understood that there was a canonical answer to that until like much further right. on. Yeah. Um, and yeah so Gunpoint is like I don't if you don't like one of the strains of Conway's personality you can suppress it you can not ever take that path right. but it's just telling you that he's the kind of one of his instincts is to say the asshole thing right. so even if you don't play him as an asshole yeah. he's, he's got that gene in him <laughs> and that's a fun way to write because you get to tell more of the character and you also don't you run a much lower risk of uh, creating a, like a wedge between the player and the character because yeah. you're never telling them you're playing an asshole or right. you're playing a kind of guy who never makes a joke and just gets on with the, with the job. Yeah. Um, and so you have to you, you have to be that guy whether you want to be or not. Yeah. Right? So yeah. letting them tailor it a bit just gives them a better chance of liking the person yeah. and people do seem to you know respond really well to him. Yeah. Well, and I felt like also probably something that felt like it came from your own um, you know set of preferences about like as a player of games is that it seemed like quite often there was a dialogue option that would just let you bail out of the conversation entirely yes <laughs> just be like all right shut up and, and, then the, and then the mission just starts yeah i think um, one of the options is like steal a thing got it yeah exactly <laughs> and also there's the end call button that you can click at any time so literally, <laughs> literally any point in a conversation you can just hang up <laughs> really i didn't even know that they never they don't chew you out for it like they do a mass effect because that's directly inspired mass effect i like, see when you call the council right. um, if they I think there's a bit in Mass Effect 2, I think it is, when 
you've kind of gone off base and you're doing things something they don't approve of and so they chew you out between every mission they just really lay it on thick about what how um how annoyed they are with you yeah and one of the dialogue options is to end the call right it's only at certain points and sometimes you have to listen to a bit of them rambling on before you can do it right and so i wanted to just be a button you have at all times of all people <laughs> you can always just hang up on them and get on with the mission so then was um, the was the rationale for that that like you would hang up on them and then they like send you the the mission details in a text afterwards or something or it was really end? just like if you um you get a briefing already uh, before the mission before you even accept it and right. then uh, in that conversation that's your opportunity to ask more about why you're doing this and get more details and if you don't want those details you can just hang up you know roughly what you're doing yeah. it's going to be get to the objective and then also in game when you press escape at any point you get another summary of what you're meant to be doing yeah. so it's really like you have all the possible information you need and I always like I skip cutscenes in GTA because I don't like the story right. and um, I really appreciate it when it pops up with a little message just saying follow the car right. <laughs> yeah. okay that's what I needed from the cutscene yeah. thanks for not wasting 8 minutes of my life um, so yeah I wanted to like if you it's for people who already know the story because they've played it before and yeah. it's also for people who just don't give a shit and right. get on with it and I'm like I totally get that yeah. <laughs> I'm like even though I wrote this plot and I you know want people to enjoy it and I hope you enjoy it if you don't like it by all means skip yeah. the whole thing I'm not going to force you there's something there's something interesting about that approach which I totally agree with um, and, and working on Gone Home was that until very shortly before we shipped there was a button to skip an audio diary that was playing. Um, and, you know, I, I, it was in my design doc from the beginning. I was like, if you're listening to this thing, you don't want to hear the rest of it, you can just press a button to, to skip it. And we had a bunch of playtest feedback that was primarily, like, with the controller, just based on the binds that we had, and we tried multiple binds. Um, people would skip audio diaries by accident, and then they would be like, people seeing seeing that and being like, oh, I skipped an audio diary and it was annoying because I didn't mean to. Multiple t- playtesters were like, why do you even have the ability to skip those things? Because, like, that's literally the point of playing the game. <laughs> yeah. uh, and why would you, like, want to encourage someone to to skip it by, like, putting a prompt up? And we, and we have a separate, like, modifier when you start a new game. You can just make it so they never play from the beginning if you want to explore the house without somebody talking in your right. ear. Um and so at some point we were like, you know what, yeah, sure, fine. We'll, we'll reduce the, the complexity of the game by one, and <laughs> we'll say, if you don't like listening to audio diaries, play the game without them. But, um, but I think it is like, <clears throat> it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, like, balance to, to keep, I think. Because, you know, we, we made it so you can skip the intro and the outro, you know, um, and, and I do totally appreciate whenever, like, unskippable cutscenes are really obnoxious and bad. But then when it's something that's, like, within the gameplay, you know, it's something you can, like, keep playing the game and just kind of tune it out as opposed yeah. to, like, being locked out until it's over. Is that something that it's, like, okay that you can't turn it off, you know, kind of thing? Like, I don't know. There, there's, there are all these different versions of imposing content on the player that that it's just I think I don't think there are any like really hard and fast rules for like and this kind you have to be able to skip and this kind is yeah. totally okay if you can't and so on and so forth for me it's stuff that stops interactivity so uh, yeah. everything playing over as I play is fine because I'm not I'm never going to be irritated and you know if I really for some reason don't want to hear it I could turn my speakers down or something right like. yeah you can you can go into the sound options and turn the voice volume down because that was I guess that was the other thing is when we started thinking about it we were like well can you skip audio diaries in any other game like you you can't 
turn off and all the ADR you want to start playing in like Bioshock or something. So we were like, no, I guess not. <laughs> all right, whatever, fuck it. <laughs> like you gotta listen to this thing. But but it was like it was going against an, my initial instinct, which was like you should be able to if you if you start this thing, you should be able to stop it. You know. Yeah. Um, I was breaking into. Um, uh, it was kind of cathartic having criticized games for so long to get to make some of these decisions myself and say, like, you know, I've been uh, criticizing people for not making story stuff skippable. Yeah. So now I'm going to go to the other extreme and it's going to be, like, everything is skippable. First time, super yeah. critical stuff, like, interactive conversations are skippable. Yeah. And, you know, in-game dialogue stuff, you can always just, like, uh, press space to get through it. And yeah. you can even skip missions. <laughs> like, yeah. You, I think I limit you to two, but you can skip a whole mission if you don't like it. And yeah. if you're replaying... Um, the intro mission is there's no interesting interactive stuff in there really like you play it but there's no puzzle or, or challenge it's just some stuff happens then you get to walk around and then you leave yeah. and so you can skip that that can be one of your skips yeah yeah so that's what I do when I'm playing it you know for the 4,000th time <laughs> right. so I know what happens in the scene I think at this point <laughs> I'm going to skip this level yeah I mean that was something I was going to ask is like you know I, I think that any of us who, who design games obviously like we are making design decisions based on what we do and don't like about games that we've played. Um, and I wonder if you feel like there's been any additional or more specific influence that specifically being like a writer and reviewer about games has, has had on you versus just like, you know, someone who has played a lot of stuff and, and thought about it. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's really helpful to have had like a very broad education in, in PC games, not in any other <laughs> platform, but, um, getting to having to play some things like a lot of stuff I reviewed is stuff I wouldn't not I wouldn't have played voluntarily right. and so I get a broader education in that and sometimes I have to learn a whole new genre I have to learn turn-based strategy games which I didn't like before I started PC Gamer um, but then you played Silent Storm making <laughs> fucking rules not, not that one did you not play have you, have you played Silent Storm no it's on Steam now and you should game play it really yeah no Silent Storm super interesting it's like 2005 it's like a it's like a Eastern European like former Soviet bloc kind of uh, uh, it's a crazy 3D isometric Jagged Alliance XCOM kind of thing but with fully destructible terrain and it's a World War 2 turn-based strategy game but it has like walker mechs in it and laser guns <laughs> it's super interesting and uh, it should be looked at by all including yourself but also anyone that's listening to this Silent Storm is a crazy game and is good yeah Anyway, so um, I think um, like analyzing games yeah, in particular. Yeah. Like, I guess you do this as a designer, but I think if you're forced to sit down and actually write a review of a game, yeah. you sort of have to analyze it, and you have to not just say what you think of it, but you kind of have to sort of defend your opinion against possible criticisms of your opinion. Or if anyone thinks that like you're criticizing the plot because you didn't understand it, you've got to like make sure you really do understand the plot. And if you're right. gonna if you're gonna say one thing, you need to investigate the alternative and make sure you're not wrong. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, categorically, um, and obviously your opinion can be whatever it likes. But if it's if it sounds like it's based on faulty info, then that's a problem. Yeah. So you've got to go really deep on these things, and you've got to play it really thoroughly, and you've got to kind of consider if this isn't working, like exactly why isn't it working, and what's the what thing could you change to yeah. make it work better? And that's uh, obviously yeah. just good design practice. And There's a level of like rigor to how you have to approach your criticism. Yeah, yeah. So you really by the end of it, I kind of. I knew very clearly what I like and what I don't like and why I like it and why I don't like it. And I also had kind of, I didn't think about it at the time, but I, I guess I had the security of knowing that my tastes are the same as a lot of gamers. Like, I, you know, when I review something, I'm 
often not far off the sort of general consensus about how good that game is. And when I am, um, when my score is very different from the Metacritic average, it's usually closer to the user review average, mm. which suggests that there's a bunch of people who think the same way I do. And, you know, when I don't like Call of Duty Black Ops, there's a bunch of people who don't like Call of Duty Black Ops for the same reasons <laughs> I don't. Right. And that means, I think, like, the kind of, one of the big luck elements of making games is, like, the skill part is you've got to make a game that you like, and then the luck element is, does anyone else like what you like? <laughs> right. And I was, I had that luck element already kind of, like, sewn up, because I already knew there's loads of people who really, really like Deus Ex, and, uh, in particular, kind of feel dissatisfied from the amount of power and sort of freedom and creativity they get in a lot of games. And they hate sitting through story stuff that isn't interesting. And yeah. they don't like po-faced, kind of straight-laced <laughs> characters who just do what they're told and kind of try and look heroic doing it. Um, and there's a lot of people sick of the same things I'm sick of. And yeah. uh, I kind of, you get a good sense of that reviewing stuff and then reading comments on your reviews and finding out where people kind of um, agree with you and disagree. And that wasn't, I don't think that influenced Gunpoint exactly. I wasn't like, yes, I'll do this because I've heard people like this. It was always just like, I'm going to please myself and do yeah. what. And but it gave things. you some confidence thinking, and there are, are other people who feel this way. Yeah, it's sort of like, it, um, obviously it worked out really well. <laughs> and I think that was, it's not unrelated that, you know, um, my usefulness as a critic for PC Gamer is... Um, limited somewhat by how much people agree with me. Like if I'm, if I had really unpopular opinions, even if I wrote about them really eloquently, they'd probably be nice about it. But it would be like it wouldn't be very useful for them to have me actually reviewing games because I'd just be I'd be doing the readers a disservice by telling them things that they all disagree with. If I mm. warn them all off Bioshock Infinite because I have some like huge problem with the plot or something, yeah. um, there'd probably be a bunch of people just quite annoyed that. Like they took my advice, and then like a year later they played it, and I think this is fucking incredible. Why didn't tell me this is good? <laughs> right. So it's um, the one of the things you need as a critic is to be have an opinion that um, that isn't going to be radically different from everybody's opinion, and that's also or at least handy. from the, the readership that you're yeah. that you're speaking yeah, to. Yeah, and it's a it's a set of people, and it's I kind of used to think it was really small. I used to think it was like the people who really like System Shock Two and aren't massive fans of the latest Call of Duty. Uh, were like this tiny cult that you know that there aren't that many of those people, uh, but it turns out there's millions of them and they're all on Steam. <laughs> they're all really engaged, active Steam users who are really willing to buy interesting-looking games yeah. and who like really, really want things that are that kind of honor the uh, like systematic um, principles of of their favorite games. Yeah. So you're working on something new now. Like, what are you? What are you bringing? What are, What are the the biggest like? lessons or 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 approaches that that you're bringing with you to the new game you're working on from gunpoint like what do you what do you want to retain or 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 explore further in specific i pretty much wrote this down in a document <laughs> it's like i need to uh keep these things and get rid of these things and uh like did it as like a bullet pointed list and then trying to try to write out how i was going to do each one um because I was originally going to make a strategy game next and that was going to be like I thought I'd be sick of stealth games and I just want to move on to something totally different and I wanted to do like a bit of a Brendan Chung and like do one game in each genre and just kind of oh, like right. do something else in this genre they do something else <laughs> in that genre and kind of like particularly because I reviewed you know strategy games and yeah. I kind of I have opinions about those too and I haven't had a chance to kind of test out my theories with that yet but the way I felt when I finished Gunpoint was that um, there were lots of things I felt like I'd learned a lot about stealth games and about this kind of game and I knew 
the things I couldn't fix in testing and in patches and stuff, uh, things that needed to start again to fix. Um, and so I suddenly had a bunch of ideas of like, I know how to do it better next time. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like if I make another stealth game, it'll be like a level two stealth game, whereas my first strategy game will still be a level one strategy game. Right. So it'll be like, <laughs> at best, it'll be about as good a, a strategy game as Gunpoint is a stealth game. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of things are to do with like, your abilities in Gunpoint are just kind of, they get out of control. <laughs> you start off pretty powerful and you get even more powerful and then the optional gadgets just mostly break the puzzles. They're like, <laughs> instead of solving the puzzle, you can buy this gadget and then you can um, override it. And I kind of, I cut some for that reason actually. There used to be a gadget that would let you connect things that are on different circuits. Mm. So it cost a lot of power, but you could just link something from the red circuit to the blue circuit. Yeah. And then... Um, that breaks every puzzle. Just yeah. puzzles <laughs> there anymore. are no puzzles if yeah. you can do that. Yeah. So I so, realized mean, that's skipping it in a non-fun way. It's, yeah. it's, you're skipping the puzzle and you're not doing anything interesting. Instead, yeah. you're just cheating. Because you because at the at the end of the game, you kind of you intentionally do like a super gravity gun. <laughs> yes, kind exactly. of like intentional game breaking <laughs> yep. feature. But it's uh, it's a doors. yeah it's like a, it's a game pacing thing where it's like okay now we're just going to let you kick doors off their hinges <laughs> and knock people out with them and it'll be awesome. Um, but it's not the kind of thing where it's like, and we'll give you that if you want it in the second level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So I, um, I don't want to make like another gunpoint with, you know, more of the same, but better. And I'll add more gadgets and have even more abilities and even more stuff. Cause it's just going to get crazy. Right. <laughs> the way to make a better stealth game than gunpoint, I think is take some of this stuff out yeah. and keep it, um, kind of limit your abilities more. Um, or just kind of, I'm interested now in something that I didn't know I was making a stealth game with gunpoint. It was only when like, I think Sneaky Bastards, the stealth um, magazine that kind of started up during its development, yeah. um, asked to uh, me to participate in like a, a like I think it was a stealth jam, and they wanted people yeah. making stealth games to do it. So I'm like, oh, I guess this is a stealth game. <laughs> like you don't want to get shot for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big deal. Um, you don't want to get seen. Yeah, because in, so, in Gunpoint, it's like you get seen, you get shot. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much is the take. Yes, and there's a lot of the things I put into Gunpoint are kind of anti-stealth like it's a game about throwing yourself through plate glass windows and right. maximum force which makes a <laughs> deafening noise and it's like uh, it's fun it's, it's, it's crazy but if I was if I'd known I was going to make a stealth game I probably wouldn't have made that so fun right. <laughs> like, the, there's a definite tension between the fun approaches and the stealthy approaches and that's true in a lot of, a lot of games it's, they often make the stealthy approach the kind of restraint approach um, so I wanted to uh, take out abilities rather than add them and um, I kind of want to start fresh and focus on like making it a good stealth game basically not to replace gunpoint or kind of um you know make gunpoint 2 or anything but to just uh, make a new game and focus on the stealth stuff and make the the really cool sneaky approach really satisfying right and well because a lot of what make what is potentially interesting about a stealth game is more about what you can't do or what your what your limitations are and overcoming those than just being like yeah super powerful and being able to do a dozen yeah. different things right and you probably still be able to break through plate glass windows <laughs> I'm not going to confirm or deny that <laughs> that seems like a thing that's that's funny when it happens um, you imply that you're at least confirming the existence of plate glass windows <laughs> probably yeah it seems unlikely I'll make a game without plate glass windows in it now All right. and the the reaction to gunpoint really changed my mind about a lot of things because. Like I say, I wasn't expecting the the writing to go down that well. Yeah. Um, and the strategy game I was planning, there's no, I had no thoughts for the story for it. Like I've, I've come up with a couple of ideas that could work, but they just they don't really inspire me that much. Yeah. Um, there's like a funny backstory I could do for it, but then when you're playing it, I don't know what the story of it is. I don't know what it should be, and I don't think it would be. I can't see a way to make that a funny strategy game. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I started to realize at gunpoint, like 
I'm so glad that people found Gunpoint funny. It's really just nice. Uh, the feedback you get is just really um, lovely. And I love watching people play it. I love watching them like chuckle at dialogue and stuff. And yeah. people really appreciate that. And also it seems to be something that isn't too difficult to do. Like it's just, yeah. if, you can, if you're going to write some dialogue, you can make yeah. the dialogue funny and then you've made a funny game. Well, like, so, <laughs> so I, I, I know this is going off, off track, but let me ask you, like, this will sound like a weird question. Uh, but before, you know, you released Gunpoint and, and you had that reaction and everything... I mean, I imagine it's a different realm for, like, your critical writing versus something like Gunpoint, but did you think of yourself as a good writer? <laughs> like, would you have, like, internally in your head or just how you would? Um, maybe I think I'd, like, I knew I'd got a lot better at games writing, writing about them and analyzing them and understanding them. I was always really trying to get funnier, which is a really like sad thing to admit. Whenever I, I'm always thinking about like how I can improve, how I can get better at my job. I took my job at PC Gamer really seriously, and I always tried to like put all of my effort into doing it as well as possible. And when I looked at the stuff I'd done, I was usually happy with my analysis. I felt like I got to the bottom of it, and I felt like I was right about the things I complained about and right about the things I liked. But when I looked at the writers I really admired, um, like Chris Livingston and John Blythe and Steve Hogarty um, and a bunch of others, but particularly those three guys are incredibly funny and they're just like when I'm reading their stuff the stuff I'm laughing at is um, stuff I just could never have written it's just <laughs> like it feels like coming from a like a completely different kind of inspiration and so I was always trying to get funnier and I never knew if I, if I got any better at that um, and I think what the reason the reaction to Gunpoint's writing surprised me is because I haven't had that much fiction experience I've only written two short stories yeah. and they both did well they've got published but you don't get a lot of feedback specifically from like readers from a book, particularly if you're one of 30 <laughs> authors in a short story collection. Right, like, yeah. Don't get a lot of emails about that. So I didn't really know how well my fiction stuff would go down. And um, I think it's much easier to be funny in fiction than it is in a game review, particularly <laughs> if you take game reviews really seriously and you feel really like obligated to really be thorough and, and incisive and try and get to the bottom of the issue. And then if like, the funniest game reviews are often like negative ones because right. they, they give the game like a kicking. Yeah. I never felt comfortable doing that. I was like just thinking of like the hundreds of people who work for years and years <laughs> in this, and I'm like, I'm I'm gonna tear it to shreds if it's bad, but I'm not gonna like enjoy doing it. It's right. not gonna be like laughing in their faces kind yeah. of thing. I really Isn't it to be... hilarious how bad of a job you did? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did like I have made jokes at games expenses, but like yeah. ones where I think um, uh, someone at irrational tweeted a line from my Bioshock Infinite review where I said it, the plot jumps Bioshock Infinity Sharks <laughs> so I feel like that's the standard like if one of the, someone who worked on the game is finds the line funny then it's, right. it didn't go too far yeah well and if you if you take a jab at a game that's generally well received you know within that context it's like you can take it <laughs> but if it's a game that like it's gonna get a 20 it's like why don't we just leave them alone they're already getting the 20 because <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just the reason I ask is just because, like, I, I, I mean, I always, I've always thought of you. As, you know, you were one of my favorite people writing about games as a journalist. Just like as far you. as like, oh, it's great writing and it's it's insightful and engaging and so forth. But I and but then so then you saying like, oh, I didn't expect the writing in the game to be so well received. It's like your job is to be a writer, but 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 I think that that is not uncommon at all, right? For it to be like there, it's like yes, my job is to be a writer, and I get paid for it, and people will react to it and everything. But like, I think it's really hard to internally think of yourself as a good writer, even if it's like clearly something that you are capable of doing for a living. Yeah, um, I try in a ways with anything I want to get good at. Um, 
I always try to be critical of what I've done, but completely undaunted by future challenges. Like, I'll never look back and think, yes, I was brilliant at that. But if you ask me, hey, do you want to do this other thing? Do you think you can do a good job of that? I'm like, fuck yes, I will fucking <laughs> knock that out of the park. I will do a brilliant job. <laughs> like, I think when I when the Bioshock review was, was coming up and we were figuring out who's going to review it, um, it was kind of, I didn't know if I would get to review it. And also, it was really keen. Everyone was really keen. Yeah. And at some point, um, I think it was Deputy Editor at the time, um, Tim Edwards, uh, like told me that it would be me to do it and I'm like fucking yes and he said but it has to be the best Bioshock review ever written <laughs> I'm like fuck it yes <laughs> I will write you the best Bioshock review ever written and now that I've written it I don't think it is but like I think it's important to not let um, your self-deprecation get in the way of your productivity I always want it to be like try and stay humble but don't shy away from anything always always like want the ball right yeah yeah um, to use a sports analogy for some reason <laughs> I don't want the ball at all I used to run away from the ball <laughs> I want any figurative balls but not actual balls <laughs> well so I mean do you feel like that was cause I guess part of the reason I ask is yeah you're saying that like going forward you you presumably want to continue to 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 make games that have like writing as a as an important component of it and yeah do you feel like I guess, do you feel like that the, the reaction to it, the external reaction to you having that in this game is is like a motivator to do that, that you might you might not have had just on your on your Yeah, own. definitely. Um, and it's it's not kind of a, chase of a case of like changing my plans to appease people. Right. It was something I really enjoyed doing at gunpoint. And yeah. I thought like, hey, I love writing and I'm really enjoying this and I'm happy with how it's turning out. And then when people find it funny you realize, okay, well, now I've got a thing I can do easily and people like it and I like doing it, so let's do that again. Whereas right. if it hadn't been received well, it would be like, well, I enjoyed doing it, but I think I've got to focus on things that are really going to have an effect and really going to make the game better, yeah. like for me and for them. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely like, I think a lot about the reception to the game and how it changes like the emotional experience of working on it and kind of my opinion of Gunpoint is affected so strongly by other people's opinions of Gunpoint and not just like not just what I whether I think it was a good game but like whether I enjoy playing it I think is influenced mm. by other people as well I think there's there's so much it's nice when you make a mechanic and you enjoy it but it's even nicer if you know from past experience oh people are going to love this <laughs> like, right this is going to go down well yeah, yeah. and then when you hear they do that's that's fantastic like motivator and doing testing like all the way through from like I don't know, week one of Gunpoint all the way through to year three yeah. um, was a great way to stay motivated and to, like, I could feel that the game was getting better from people's responses. Yeah. And that that just feels really good. I don't want to make a game just for myself. Right. And, and that's, I mean, that's something that, that just on a practical level, I think, is really important. I think for for everybody to, to keep in mind, like, especially if you're just starting to make games and, you know, you're, you're less confident in what you're doing. Like, yeah, I, I, I know that I was playing versions of Gunpoint that you were working on from very early just as, like, a playtester kind of um, yeah. uh, uh, role. Um, that was, it was, like, long before you entered IGF, I was playing some version of, of, of Gunpoint, just, like, giving feedback and stuff. And... Yeah, I think that something that you point out that's really useful is not just that playtesting makes the game better because it gives you, you know, responses to, to measure against and lists of things to change. But yeah, it can be like a an important um, like motivating factor. You know, it can it ha- having people get their hands on the thing that you're making and see whether it's worth a damn, you know, like see see what they, they do care about and what they don't. And just the fact that 
you've made something and you're not the only one that's touching it, you know? Um, and, and just that, that knowledge and that feeling of like it being real, you know, I think, um, it can, can be really, really powerful, especially like, you know, when you're kind of, when, when, when it's still solidifying, you know, and, and it's in the earlier stages. Yeah. And it's, um, I think like if that, the way people respond to it is never going to change my philosophy of games. It's never going to be like, you know, they like the writing, so I'm going to do more writing because I like writing too and I like I wanted to do that. Um, but if they said, if the reaction to Gunpoint was like, oh, we hate this like constant auto-saving thing and it takes all the challenge out of the game we just don't like that, I'd be like, fuck you guys, I'm doing it again. Right. <laughs> That's staying in. I like that feature. Yeah. Yeah, there are certain things that are kind of fair game for a playtester and some where it's like, I think you should be making a different game. Well, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay. Yeah, buddy. When I'm reading feedback, a lot of it's um, really positive stuff, but then I specifically ask people for what's the worst thing about the game, and I get a big list of terrible things about my game. <laughs> and um, if it's if your game's like coming together nicely, then the complaints you get will be really different, right? Because <laughs> yeah. there won't be a big glaring thing wrong with it. Yeah. There'll be everyone will have to come up with a different answer. And when you read that list, it's like you did everything wrong. <laughs> it's like, oh god, they don't like a crossing, they don't like a jumping, they don't like a level design, they don't like a writing. <laughs> you can't help but read it as like one big guy who just hates everything. <laughs> and that was like really, really depressing. And uh, sometimes you read those criticisms and you're like, ah, oh, fair enough, yeah, I can, I can do a better job of that. Oh, that's really useful, I didn't know that was causing that problem. And then you read some of them like, oh, fuck you, <laughs> <Just> get out! <laughs> Uh, it's, it's good that I never reply to any testers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, you're you're still really early in what you're working on. By the time that this this podcast comes out, you will have been on doing stuff on it for for a little while longer. But yeah, like, what do you know about it? You know, like like what are the things that are that are in it now that you feel like are the 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 guiding elements of it that are that are gonna you know be what you focus on going forward yeah so it's a stealth game and it has a grappling hook in it <laughs> that's what I've shown so far I haven't actually said it's a stealth game I guess but it's sort of like self-evident I think <laughs> um, and I want to uh, like I say pare down the mechanics more and kind yeah. of focus on particular things I think I'm gonna well, you're making it in Unity, right? Yes. But is it still is it still intended to be like a side? It's side a side on game? Yeah. Okay. Side on perspective. It will be functionally two D, but it will be rendered in three D. It's not going to be a, a two D game. It's yeah. going to be. It'll have physics objects that you can see all sides of, and um, if I need to zoom in on somebody for like a cutscene or something, then you right. can see the room and things. Yeah. Um, and in fact, once we've got like, if I get art in and it looks good, it's going to be really fun to like rotate the camera to yeah. places you're not supposed to, like and just see. Hey, look at this really thin building. <laughs> um. So yeah, I want to... Uh, I think physics will be a big part of it. I don't know exactly how. I have a couple of ideas about that. Um, I want to keep writing it in some way, like yeah. characters um, talking to you. Uh, but I'd really like to do a better job of finding ways to make story things happen in levels. I don't know what exactly. It'll probably be some kind of a limited, codified thing. Um, like maybe there's just a character in the level and whether he lives or dies is relevant to the plot. Yeah. and whether or not that happens is up to you and maybe it's a choice or maybe it's something you're trying to do and you might fail at um, pretty similar to an objective ad for gunpoint which I abandoned but I think I can get smarter at that I think there's, there's better ways to do it yeah. I might fail and give up and just have conversations between missions and have the plot and game never touch each other I, yeah. I know that works now that's a route I can take but I'd like to do better on that if I can Yeah. and then I, I guess mean, like gunpoint with a grappling hook and physics sounds like a pretty compelling like <laughs> basic pitch of like oh sweet and maybe you can like swing on the grappling hook to knock a physics object through a window perhaps <laughs> you know? like I don't know it sounds like there's cool uh, potential there <laughs> yep that seems like a one choice that you go for um, and I also want procedurally generated levels because I oh wow I thought about doing that at gunpoint and I never got around to it and in retrospect 
it would have been easier to write a level generator than it would be to make 20 levels. <laughs> and 20 levels isn't nearly enough. Everyone, you know, the biggest complaint about gunpoint is it's too short. And sure. the, when you read those bits of feedback, they're like, oh, it's, it's too short. And you think, yeah, I know, but I guess I could, like, if I delayed it by another year, I could do another 10 missions. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they don't say, like, well, if it was 30 missions, they say, you should do, like, 100 missions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's useful information. I can never please you. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is not going to happen. I'm never going to make 100 missions for you. So, I, like, the solution is not to make the game longer, it's to make it infinite. <laughs> so, so, is the, so, I mean, the things that, that sound challenging about that are, are you saying that the, the campaign, like this, the thing that the story exists in, would also be procedurally generated? Yes, probably. Um, I don't know. It might be like there's some hand script emissions in amongst the random ones if I right. need something to unfold a certain way, but I, I prefer the idea of randomly generating everything. And if there's a plot objective in that level, it's still going to be in there somewhere. Um, and uh, it will, the level will just be different. I'd like you to be able to play through the, the whole plot again and have new levels. Yeah. And if you want to. Because some people like to replay Gunpoint to take different options in the conversations. Right. And of course, the game itself is the same, and they can play it a different way, but it's like the levels are... You'll get bored of that eventually. Yeah. But I'd like it if you could actually want to replay a story-driven campaign, because you can skip the story if, you don't, if you're bored of it, or you can make different choices if you want to, and then the levels are different too, so yeah. there's kind of no limit. I don't know if that's the best solution. Maybe there's, there's something less story-driven for the infinite stuff. But in my head, I think I know how to generate a building that <laughs> will be competable. Because after now that I've designed twenty, well, designed twenty levels that we shipped in Gunpoint, right. and about ten to fifteen more, actually no more than probably about twenty, thirty more that I scrapped because they weren't good enough or because right. they didn't fit the new engine, the new art. Sorry. Um, now that I've done that, I kind of have the formula. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not. That's why I didn't make any more levels because it became formulaic. I was yeah. like, okay, I, I'm, I don't have any new ideas to add to this. Um, and so those twenty levels of Gunpoint can be generated from a formula, but basically yeah. in terms of how I I went about designing them. And so, if I can actually make that formula, I have the great advantage of having really boring levels. Like in terms of visually, they're just office blocks and they're just yeah. rectangles and they're made of smaller rectangles. Yeah. It's very easy to fit rectangles inside <laughs> other rectangles. That's a pretty th easy thing to generate. I'm not trying to do like a subversion thing where they made the whole fucking city organically right. with like rivers and motorways and stuff. Like not that kind of procedural generation. Yeah. I'm talking about like let's put the room here instead of here. Yeah. Well, it's something. It's like a, it's like what I've seen if you've played uh, Eldritch. Um, yeah. That. Uh, former co-worker uh, friend David Pittman made um, where yeah I was I was impressed by by the readability of how those levels are generated and they're three-dimensional and they're very like unpredictable but also yeah they're just these conditions that must be fulfilled so the player can't get stuck and yeah. can always get to the end and the correct thing always exists in the right level you know um, in the progression and everything and yeah it seems like if you have if you you know if you could look at basically the elements of the story stuff that's supposed to happen in this particular level as these three factors must always be present within the generation of this particular level and then everything else has to work itself out like yeah it's just like procedural are you thinking well it seems like a challenge would be procedural generation of like satisfying puzzles that mm. sounds like the the toughest concept well i think the another thing i discovered during that point is that I also didn't mean for it to be a puzzle game, really. That just kind of happened because of the right. crosslink. Like yeah. when you, if you don't want to like, play it all powerful, you have to put obstacles in his way. And yeah. then, but there has to be a way around them. <laughs> and it turns out an <laughs> obstacle with like one or two ways around it, that's a puzzle. Um, Surprise! But I didn't. I'm not a good puzzle designer, and I, like I say, I ran out of ideas with gunpoint levels. I didn't have another. <laughs> those other eighty levels that guy wants me to make, you wouldn't right. like it if I made them. <laughs> they would be the same fucking puzzles. Yeah. Um, and I'm not super excited about making 
there are some people who are really big puzzle game fans who didn't find the puzzles in Gunpoint satisfying enough they didn't get hard enough and they wanted right. really like properly brain taxing like um, really tricky puzzles like uh, Stephen Lavelle in Coupere does like he's brilliant at making super genius puzzles that are really fucking hard yeah. <laughs> and I'm bad at puzzle games and also I'm not really interested in making one particularly yeah. so what I'd like to focus on is like it's not really a puzzle game but there are obstacles and ways to get around them and then I just want to make those ways to get around them really satisfying right. and then sometimes due to the random nature or due to sometimes design um, there will be two or three ways to get to your objective you realize oh actually uh, you know maybe we don't need to go through that room we can go through this other room because maybe my grappling hook lets me smash through that window or something I don't right. know exactly what the, the solutions will be but I'm hoping I can generate levels that there's at least one route through and I don't mind if there are others <laughs> if it turns out hey I could just like break this window and then steal the thing from there yeah um, that would be fine with me yeah yeah but it becomes much less yeah about a sort of satisfying interaction of, of yeah like solving a, a bespoke puzzle that is like oh discovering yeah. the solution to that was really satisfying yeah it's, it's more probably, about like pure traversal and, and yeah it won't be like totally mind-blowing <laughs> solutions you'll be like I hope that you'll look at a build like a, a building that you want to break into and think hmm how do I do this and then you know work it through in your head and plan and yeah. then come up with your own idea and particularly if we're randomly generating it your idea you'll probably be the first person ever to have that idea. You're probably the first person ever to think of this. But it won't be like learning new rules exactly yeah. after the, the, the once you're introduced to all the mechanics. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, you're 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 just really starting to, to get spinning up on uh, on this new project, but uh, it sounds like there's gonna be some really cool stuff in it. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> hopefully. But uh, good luck with, with the rest of uh, the odyssey of dev on uh, your second game ever after the success of Gunpoint. And congratulations again on, on yeah on Gunpoint being uh, so well received. Thanks a lot. Um, and yeah, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to seeing how this new thing comes out. Thanks for having me. On.